Ladies and gentlemen, the following podcast contains coarse language, strong thematic themes, talk of history and context, terrible imitations of Hollywood figures, and an unbashed love of Hollywood's golden age. It also contains the ramblings of an unstable dork who has too much time on his hands. Listener discretion is advised. And now, on with the program. Okay, Zach, you're on the air. Ladies and gentlemen, in addition to all those things, this episode contains a few instances of Renfield going, (laughs) you have been warned, and now let's return to a new world of gods Gods and and monsters. monsters. (laughs) The Abbey always reminds me of that old toast about lofty timbers, the walls around our bears. Echoing to our laughter, as though the dead were there. Oh, nice little sentiment. (laughs) But there's more, even nicer. Pass a cup to the dead already. Hurrah for the next to die. Oh, never mind the rest, dear. (laughs) (laughs) To die, to be really dead, that must be glorious. Well, Count Dracula. There are far worse things waiting man than death. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome, welcome, welcome to the Yesteryear Ballyhoo Review. Many great sights await inside the Picture Palace of the Past, and we have plenty of ways to talk about the things inside. So hurry and get your seats. Tonight, the Ballyhoo takes a trip among the rugged peaks that crown upon the Borgo Past, where one can find a crumbling castle of a bygone age that stands proud with its imperfections as a forebearer of the modern horror picture. Past the creaking doors and through the brush of spider webs and occasional armadillos, you will find the presence of a monster who has never and will never leave our thoughts. He is too charming for words and twice as deadly, with a glare that compels you both to shudder and swoon. He is the one and only Count Dracula. And tonight, the Ballyhoo will take you under the spell of the Count as we unveil a Dracula double bill with our presentations of Todd Browning's 1931 classic and George Melford's 1931 Spanish-language version of the indelible vampire thriller Dracula. So see the show and stay behind for a discussion to delight the earbuds. Dracula. A moment ago, I stumbled upon a most amazing phenomenon. Something so incredible, I mistrust my own judgment. Look. Dracula. The very mention of the name brings to mind things so evil, so fantastic, so degrading. You wonder if it isn't all a dream, a nightmare. Rats. Rats. 
rats, thousands, millions of them. But no, this is no dream. This is Dracula, the original terrifying story of a maniac and a man who lived after death, lived on human blood, took the form of a vampire bat and lured innocent girls to a fate truly worse than death. Dracula? Oh, what, what's he done to you, dear? Tell me. He came to me. He opened a thing in his arms, and he made me drink. Soy Drácula. No podía usted ser más oportuno. No sé lo que pasaría con el cochero, con mi equipaje. Con todas esas cosas, creí que me había equivocado de casa. Los muros de mi castillo están cuarteados. Abundan en él las sombras. Pero suba. Está usted en su casa. Now that you've seen the show, we will get to the talk of the day. In 1931, the world of horror was forever changed with the arrival of Universal's talking chiller classic. It was a film that, thanks to its massive success, would kick off Universal's high stratosphere goal of producing the finest horror pictures known to man. The output became so strong that as time went on, the legacy of Todd Browning's and Bela Lugosi's scream triumph had been surpassed by other monsters in the canon. Dracula was the first, but many argue he is not the king, and not even the eternally loved Spanish version simultaneously produced can sway the argument. Yet both films are of massive, massive significance, something which no one will ever deny. And tonight the battle who will ramble off this oft-told tale once again, but we cannot do it alone. With us tonight is a return guest whose love for the Universal Monsters is as pure as his love for the denizens of Rick's Cafe and the antics of Bud and Lou. Please welcome back to the show, Mr. Matt Willicks. Hello. Hey. Thank you. How are you? I'm good, sir. How are you? Good. I, I, I shouldn't ask you how you are because I've been hanging out at your house all day. <laughs> <laughs> then you know I'm fine. Yes, I'm I, I, know, I know you're doing well. We were upset yeah. that the Bon Me place wasn't open. That's true. We, yeah, I was looking forward to that Bon Me. I've never had Bon Me before. The I mean, it's it's just a sandwich. It's just a sandwich. Yes, but if the Halloween reboot taught me anything, is is that I need to open up my food horizons, if you will. That's true. <laughs> yeah, but um, so this has kind of been long in the works to That's do true. some universal monsters. When, when you first, before you even started the podcast, you texted me and you're like, what do you want to do? And I think Dracula was one of my first. I, I, I sent you this 
really long list unfairly. I'm like, <laughs> I'm claiming all these movies. <laughs> and for some reason, I thought you had a 1963 cutoff, which I didn't understand. Yeah, no, it's 68. It's, yeah. it's been unclear, so I might just be getting rid of that rule entirely and just yeah. let, yeah, just go ahead and do the 70s. I don't yeah. give a shit. But but yeah, I think Dracula was among my, I, or maybe I just said Universal Monsters. Yeah, I think okay. you I think you said Universal Monsters in general, although you you have mentioned the Wolfman once in a while, and I think that that's one we're going to definitely get you back for. But Dracula did kind of surprise me because most universal monster chatter wants to go directly to Frankenstein or Bride of Frankenstein. Yeah. Um, which is not unfair. Um, <laughs> I think it's arguable that the Frankenstein films cinematically are offering more to, for people to dissect um, in certain regard. But uh, I will ask you a question that I've been asking people whenever we do these Universal Monster movies, which now is the second time or third time, actually, because we did do the Black Cat for our first episode. Uh, and we did we just did Bride of Frankenstein with Aaron Mullane. Uh, so I will ask you, since you already told us your Golden Age Hollywood story, how do you get into Universal Monsters? How did you get corrupted as a youth? <laughs> OK, so this answer might be blasphemous. Oh but no. It, no. But, but it's because of Steven Summers, the mummy. <gasps> oh, that's not blasphemous remake. at all. That's, no, I, that's, no, I know. That was my that was one of my that, that was one of the cruxes for me continuing. Well, and so that kind of got me into monsters was that the mummy with Brendan Fraser. Um and then when I started watching horror I um so I would just go so when when I first started watching horror when I knew I was like okay I want to watch more of this I think I love this I went out and I rented like the five movies I was most nervous to watch mm-hmm. and for some reason Coppola's Dracula was one of those movies I don't know why but mm, I mean it it does look intimidating the <laughs> the cover well, does I, look intimidating I had I had memories of it when it came out in theaters I just I'd seen the watched the trailers you know and seen images and I was like that scares me and I was just a, <laughs> I was just a kid you yeah know? um the other so the other movies it was like it was Saw The Exorcist Evil Dead Two Bram, and Bram Stoker's Dracula I think that was the the grouping where I was like I don't want to watch these and that was like no I have to watch these yeah you've got to get over that hump yeah um but I I loved it and then um years later the Hugh Jackman seminal piece of Van Helsing <laughs> came out we like that movie uh, yeah, yeah we understand that it's not listen it's 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 bad. We know. <laughs> but but it doesn't matter. <laughs> it's fun. <laughs> but the box set of that came with the original version of Dracula Frankenstein and, and the Wolfman. Wolf yeah. And when I and I was like, okay, I should probably watch these. And I ended up watching those more than I did the Van Helsing movie. <laughs> so <laughs> yeah, just making Stephen Summers cry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so that's that's sort of my um my foray to universal horror. Okay. Yeah. So you got so you kind of got entry leveled in by somebody who carried on the legacy. Yeah. Which mm-hmm. is honestly I think that's how a lot of us get into it at some point or another. My my initial exposure was prior to the mummy but not by uh, not by super long. Like but the first time I saw the mummy was after I had already seen Dracula. Um Dracula was the first universal monster movie I ever saw. Nice. Um, and so therefore, <clears throat> it's also the one that has stuck with me the longest. Now, I didn't get fully into my deep dive on Universal Monsters 
until after the mummy. Um, but that, that was a case of me acquiring through Blockbuster. And at the time we had a video visions near us, which was an independent dish kind of video store before it became a Blockbuster. It was a video visions and I got Dracula and the invisible man. And they all had, they both had the behind the scenes featurettes, um, attached to them that David J skull created. Um, and then eventually over time I picked up Frankenstein, the Wolfman, Bride of Frankenstein, and uh, I didn't get to the sequels until later. Um, and there were some that I didn't, I hadn't caught until Universal put out the big Blu-ray box set. But it was like few and far between. I believe it was the uh, Creature from the Black Lagoon sequels was the ones I was primarily missing. Which I like them. They're fun. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, another thing I need to shout out is I didn't know about the sequels. Well, I knew about them, but I didn't like know anything about them and um until I watched uh, I was I'm I used to be a big um angry video game nerd fan <laughs> and his uh so his company Cinemasker they for years they did this uh, thing in October called Monster Madness where he would just do short movie reviews mm-hmm. well he did a bunch of universal monster stuff really um, yeah so that's another so that I got like little short history lessons on um on those as well. So that was another thing. I was like, oh yeah, I like monsters. So you got like, you you very much got like an education through various different sources, but. Yeah, yeah. So then yeah. I, I should ask like, what is it about it that keeps you around them? Because not everybody can watch the monster movies and appreciate them. Sometimes they watch them for the sake of, well, it's a classic, I've got to watch it. I, I, love, I love the way they look. Um, and I love how kind of simple they are, mm-hmm. right? Um, I like that they're well. They're waiting. <laughs> I don't know, man. I, there's just something about them that the, the I like. I relate to the monsters, yeah. from my own life. Um, there's that. There's that sympathy factor attached to them. Yeah, because they all have that. Mm-hmm. Well, um, does Dracula is the is I guess is a question that'll come uh, up today. I, I guess I guess not in this version, mm-hmm. but in when they do the romantic the romantic versions of right. Dracula. Yeah. yeah, there is that. Depends on the adaptation that you're getting. Exactly. Um I it would make sense that the I mean like they they the simplicity out of it really comes out of the fact that Universal didn't have a lavish budget to to foist upon these regularly. Yeah. When you think about it, the Universal monster movies are very much low budget B movies that have been elevated to A status over time. Yeah. Um and in a lot of ways, like to do an early comparison of what Universal Monsters did back in the day is Blumhouse is technically doing the same thing over at Universal. You know, you, yeah. you've, <laughs> do I detect some disgruntlement from Blumhouse? <laughs> no. <laughs> Go ahead. Don't be shy. No, no, no. They're, they're doing good stuff. <laughs> Jason Blum's going to hear this and he's just going to be like, I don't understand. Does he love it or does he hate it? I don't no, it's. I think they're fine. They're fine. <laughs> I love no Blumhouse. Complaints. <laughs> no complaints. Um, but no, like technically, from the budgetary standpoint, that is like the key thing. They're they're spending like about minute, maximum five to ten million uh, on these films. Like I think the Halloween movies probably fetch them the highest price. Yeah, and these guys were filming these. Uh, hor- universal horror movies that budgets that were below the eight hundred thousand dollar mark at many times didn't wasn't 
Dracula like three hundred three hundred and fourteen thousand thousand. Yeah. yeah. And the Spanish version is only sixty six thousand dollars as the budget, which is insane. Only when you only until you consider that the sets were already built and they're just using the sets at night. Yeah. So their cost is primarily actor fees and crew fees, and that's about it. And then whatever director and producer fee is attached to that. Right. Which given that Paul Corner's involvement, he was already like a salaried employee of Universal. His pay wasn't going to matter per picture. Um, but the good thing that Universal has done has been promoting the fact of that it has this older library attached to it. And they did the same with Hitchcock. They kind of do that, yeah. Yeah, and I and I believe that, and if I'm remembering correctly, like I got to the Universal Monsters first but before I got to the birds, yeah. And then my, the reason I got into the birds was watching the Hitchcock Masterpiece Collection ad on the VHS for The Mummy. So a lot of my exposure to early horror cinema came because of the mummy VHS. You know, I, this isn't, so this didn't get me into, um, universal monsters, but, uh, when I grew up part, part of my childhood, I grew up in Florida mm. and I'm sorry. <laughs> no, it was fine. Okay. Um, when you're down there, you are bombarded with, um, advertisements about Disney, Disney world mm. and universal studios. One of the things going on universal had at that time was the, um, they had the monsters in like a like a rock show, like a live rock show, at Disneyland. <laughs> no, no, at Universal. Oh, at Universal, yeah. And I forget what it was called. It was like like Graveyard Review or something. And then once when Beetlejuice came out, they added Beetlejuice to it. So it was Beetlejuice rocking out with Frankenstein and Dracula and the Wolfman <laughs> in this live rock. He's show. The, he's the mo- he's the most verbal of the yeah. of the whole bunch. And I, 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 as a kid, I was just like, aren't they supposed to be scary? Like, why are they in a band? <laughs> they don't have to scare you all the time. Sometimes right. they, sometimes a monster just wants to rock. Right. And and now I look back and I'm like, God, I wish I could have seen that when I was a kid. I didn't get a chance to see it. Uh, I'm sure there's a video on YouTube showing it. The the I remember the Six Flags. Um, had Six Flags Elitch Gardens when Elitch Gardens was owned by Six Flags had a Halloween fest kind of deal going on with them where they would have the monsters going around, but I never got to go to it. Um, I mean, Universal Universal um, Nights of Universal Horror Nights still does a lot of recreations of the older films. I know that, like, I don't know if it's this year or if it was last year that they did this. Well, actually, they couldn't do it last year because of COVID. Um, but I think one of this year's ones is like Bride of Frankenstein or something like that. Like they're going to actively carry on that theme. Um, so it's interesting that you got into it the, in, through the mummy the way a lot of us seem to have. Like it seems like that Stephen Summers for for however you want to look at him as a filmmaker, one thing's for sure, he's a really good gateway for people. Yeah, And absolutely. I love those mummy movies. Uh, yeah. the, even The Mummy Returns. I know the CGI sucks. I know it, but I just, I just fucking adore the way he handled the mummy adventures. I think, I think, I mean, the CG is pretty good for the time. Yeah. Oh yeah. It's, it's better than it ought to be. Oh my God. So universal monsters, rock and roll show. Oh my God. That that's insane. I'm pretty sure it was called the graveyard review. the, I mean, but that'd be, I, I can't find a picture. Welcome to the yesteryear graveyard with you. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm looking for a picture of like the '80s, like 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 flyer that I had. Right. You know. Yeah. I mean, I I will say that while you're looking that up. Oh. 
I have something better, actually. Oh, you do? You want to talk for five minutes? Oh, yes, absolutely. So. I made friends with a lot of people in the danger zone. See my Okay, yeah. so all right, so welcome back. Uh, so we're we're here because Willix has found something in the library, his luxurious library, by the way, filled with books, and we'll have a photo of it here on the oh, Ballyhoo yeah. toys page, and yeah. prints, and it's a a it's portrait a nice of our friend Jace. <laughs> sex. That's uh, that's titled Sex Jace. <laughs> Are you serious? Yeah, we, I renamed it. Sex oh, Jace, okay, yeah. good. I mean, it makes perfect sense. Yeah, it is, but it's it's great, right? Oh my god, it's yeah. awesome. Did he paint it himself? I think or? his brother did it. Ah, yeah. it's really cool. I have two paintings here for my friend Leah. Yeah, that, one of them is a uh, Star Wars. Yep. Yeah, it's pretty awesome. The send the. I'm not going to say the line he says. <laughs> the Tuscan Raiders are easily scared, but they'll soon be back and in greater and numbers. And in greater numbers. <laughs> um, so when I so when when I was living in Florida, I saved like every like brochure and like park map ever. Uh-huh. So I don't know. Here's just like Kennedy Space Center, mm-hmm. Adventure River. Sea World, Sea World, Disney World, then, and so here's one from Universal Studios, Florida. Okay, you can see they're pimping out. Yeah, the old, yeah, we've the got old school attractions. Yeah, the King Kong attraction, King Kong, Jaws. But, which would be on the Studio Ride Jaws. Yeah, yeah Back to the Future, to the, 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 future ride. the Ride. This is when Jaws was its own ride. Woof. Yes, woof, woof. I, I, why can't I be back in time? Why do I have to be now making a fucking podcast? <laughs> <laughs> the Nickelodeon Studios. Nickelodeon Studios, They're yeah. Right here. Oh. Beetlejuice's graveyard review. You can see you can see all the monsters rocking yep. out. Beetlejuice's graveyard review. Mm-hmm. Oh my god. Oh, and they, they had a live Ghostbusters show. Yeah, oh my god, that's a huge fucking yeah. slimer right there. And they got a Hitchcock. Alpha, Oh my god. Oh my three D theater. That's right. I remember when they did that. You just <laughs> had me walking around going like, Oh guys, check it out. I'm about to touch you in three D, but I'm not. <laughs> so anyway, that I just wanted to show you like, I just remembered Nickelodeon Studios was <laughs> universal. Yeah, yeah. Even though they're owned by Vike. <laughs> Right, <laughs> I don't get how they functioned at that. But so, needless to say, we we have monster blood running in us. And so, oh, yeah, all of that was just to prove <laughs> that, <laughs> that. that I'm this committed. Yeah. <laughs> you can't tell me that I'm not a fan. <laughs> I'm a super fan. Um, but so, when we're talking about Dracula, why is this the one that you picked? I, I am curious. Out of all the ones that you could have picked as a first dibs on. You know that's funny because the Wolfman is my favorite mm. um, among all of them. I love all of them. Um, Which we'll have to do Wolfman with you. Yeah, I I love the Wolfman, and I don't have to do the first one. Like we can do a sequel or or whatever. I even have Frankenstein like, meets the Wolfman. Let's have fun with that one. <laughs> I have the I have an independent production of the House of Wolfman. Mm. That have you have I shown that to you at all? No, I have. You have not. So the first time I went to Comic Con. I'm, I'm going to get to your Dracula question in just yeah, a second. absolutely. <laughs> but let me address the Wolfman <laughs> and why he is the best one. <laughs> but I, I came across this guy at a booth in San Diego Comic-Con, and he was 
making because they made they never made a House of the Wolfman mm-hmm. movie. They made House of Frankenstein, and House, House of Dracula. Dracula. Yeah. So he was making a House of the Wolfman, and um, I finally bought a copy. Like, uh, like I just remember seeing his trailer playing at um Comic Con. Yeah. yeah, and it was awesome. And I talked to him for a few minutes, and he's just like, "Yeah, I went to Vegas and I won the production money off of." You know, a good run at craps, and I was like, "Just say you got it from the mob. It's fine." <laughs> but they built- you want to do what with your money, Mugsy? <laughs> but they want to make a movie. <laughs> yeah, but they they built like a castle set, and it they shot it in black and white and four three and everything. Mm-hmm. Oh they my used God. Lon Chaney Junior.'s like grandson as as the main. He can't act, but. Um, <laughs> They used him as the main character, and it's well. We'll have to watch it. Like, well, maybe we'll watch it on that black and white Halloween Ooh, day. That could be a. You know what? That would be a fun episode to do. Is talking about somebody trying to make their own Universal monster movie. Yeah. Well, I mean, in like, that tradition, like Batman Returns is a Universal monster movie in my <laughs> mind. Re- explain your theory here for the folks. Well, I mean, just I mean, like Tim Burton cares so much more about Catwoman and Penguin and their like dark origins. That and, is true. You know what I mean? Like, have you tried watching Batman Returns and? black and white i have never tried that. try it man it's awesome oh yeah i do, i do we we like batman returns is one of the movies i watch it every christmas i don't know why but well mistletoe can be deadly if, if you, you eat, eat it, it. Well, a ki- but a yeah. kiss can be deadlier <laughs> if you mean it <laughs> um but yeah so yeah, try that out, kids. Okay, yeah, yeah. Try out. Missiles. Also, watch Raiders of the Lost Ark in black and white. It's pretty yeah. amazing. Actually, there was um, y- you've you've had a project going on for years about uh, turning the Star Wars prequels into serials, uh, into, into like a black and white. Serial. Oh, I or I, sepi- was it sepia or black and white? So I'm gonna I want to edit the whole. I no 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 no. I so I I edited. I edited the Rocketeer into serials. That's right. Yeah, the Rocketeer. So I have a version of the Rocketeer in it's in black and white. And I added sound effects and like scratchy film effects to it, and it's pretty awesome. I didn't change the aspect ratio though, <laughs> <laughs> but to be continued. To be continued. Um. Anyway, why Dracula? Um, yeah. That was a long segue. Yeah. Why Dracula? One. Why me? <laughs> I could have picked any of the other ones. (laughs) I just, I have this, um, I grew up, uh, I grew up in the church. So this like, it's almost this perversion of, you know, like, you know, Dracula says the blood is the life. Mm -hmm. And, you know, when you grow up in the church, they say that too, but it has a very different meaning. Yeah. I mean, the Dracula is like a very blasphemous kind of a. Dracula is kind of inverting. It's it's directly inverting the resurrection theme. Right. Yeah. Which. Yeah. And, and, and I'm not, I'm not anti like religion, but I, I, I'm not a, I'm not really a churchgoer anymore. Not a practicer of it. Right. Um, it just, I, I just think vampires kind of just they just fascinate me i mean it's just it's kind of the ultimate version you know what i mean mm-hmm. like yeah of of you know you're you're someone who's powerful you're someone who's sexy you know um you you live forever <laughs> it's just it's just kind of a we'll never get older and we'll never die <laughs> Um, it's just very appealing, you know, to 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 like a fantasy degree. I agree. Yeah. No. There's a, there's a definite value that comes within that idea of of 
positioning yourself in the vampire role. Yeah, yeah. You know, um, <clears throat> I do feel like what's interesting is that the reading on Dracula as a character has evolved so much depending on <clears throat> what we are desiring out of the moment. And the vampire mythos at large is subverted by Stoker when he originally has his novel published in 1897. Yeah. He makes Dracula in the novel... Stoker in the novel makes Dracula a decrepit old man. Yeah, who, who gets younger as he drinks blood. Yeah, but it's kind of specified that he never really gets sexier. That's the, like that's, that's true. <laughs> that's the thing that David J. Skull points out in pretty much any interview he does. And uh, but prior to that, the vampire mythos had been expounded upon by people such as Lloyd Lord Byron, where there was a sex symbol attaché attached to it, um, and it didn't happen until well first. Dracula's history and him getting to the point of becoming something like Bela Lugosi starts tangentially through Stoker's initial job at the Lyceum Theater working for Henry Irving, the great noted actor Henry Irving, who none of us remember for a lot of reasons. The big one being that he was an asshole, uh, <laughs> a boss from hell, as one of the interviews describes in the Road to Dracula documentary. Um, and Stoker was working for Irving and thought Irving would be perfect for Dracula. He he wrote Dracula with the purposes of making money and also with the purposes of trying to get it adapted to stage. And he wanted Irving to play Dracula. And they did a reading of it at the Lyceum Theater for copyright purposes. And Irving was purported to walk by and go, dreadful. <laughs> walk off with his pretentious nonsense. And now nobody remembers Irving today, but we all remember Dracula. Right. And then... The stage productions of Dracula really kick off after two things. One is a film called Dracula's Death. Dracula's Death is a lost Hungarian film, which has nothing to do with Dracula, apart from the fact that it concerns a music teacher who has gone crazy and thinks he's Dracula and starts causing chaos inside the mental institution that he's housed in. Uh, okay. And he tries to prove that he's immortal by having people shoot him dead, and then he dies. <laughs> <laughs> wow. It's, it's uh, quite a weird start for Dracula's film career. But then, of course, in 1922... A certain F.W. Murnau breaks copyright law <laughs> and creates Nosferatu, a symphony of horror. Um, and that a couple of Nosferatu is actually key to the to the Dracula film history, not just because of the similar the similar plots and the fact it's a vampire story and it's based off of Stoker's novel, but also it establishes that. When Nosferatu was made, Stoker's widow placed a copyright claim on it and claimed plagiarism, and it forced the courts to deem that Nosferatu was to be pulled from theaters and the prints were to be destroyed. Luckily, prints of Nosferatu survived. One of the studios that saved a print was Universal. Universal saved their print. They actually used pieces of the negative in a short film called Boo, from the early 1930s, which is attached to the Frankenstein Blu-ray. Really? Yeah. We, I mean, I, can, I could show you where to find it on the menu okay. later. Um, but it's a short film that has sections of other horror films. And one of them it has is The Cat Creeps, which is a lost film that I was telling you about earlier today. Yeah. We have the original version of it, The Cat and the Canary, directed by Paul Lenny, but we don't have the mo the sound version of The Cat Creeps. The The sound version of The Cat, uh, the cat and the Canary 
or the cat creeps that you're going to be aware of is the Bob Hope version with Paulette Goddard. And that's more of a humorous take, obviously, even though Cat in the Canary has humorous intonations. And Dracula's, though, its big thing was is that when you're going to make a movie version of Dracula going forward, you're going to be negotiating with a couple of different sources. One of them, obviously, is going to be Bram Stoker's Widow. The other two are Hamilton Dean and Horace Livewright and John H. Balderston. Uh, so the play history of Dracula, this is where that starts kicking in uh, to the story. Hamilton Dean first, per, first puts on productions of Dracula on one, London's West End. And they are so popular that Horace Livewright and, uh, acquires the rights to them for Broadway. He hires John L. Balderston to rewrite the script so that it's not impenetrable to Americans. Basically, he Americanizes it, if you will. Kind of like when we remake a foreign film with American... I mean, like I like uh, Let Me In, uh, yeah. the, the remake of Let the Right One In. I like it because it does it does hold true to the story uh, in, in certain places. Like in other places, Reeves goes in his own direction. But it is firmly cemented in, America, in 80s yeah. America in a way that does provide a... a a window dressing, I guess, to, to apply to the film. Um, now, in 1927, uh, they they are trying to find an actor in order to kick off their Broadway production, and Raymond Huntley, who was in the production on the West End, quit because of a salary dispute. It's kind of for the best anyway, because Horace Livewright wanted a suave, exotic, foreign-type to play Dracula on stage, enter Bella motherfucking Lugosi. <laughs> now, on our first episode, we talked about Lugosi and Karloff together, but I think Bella deserves his own bio. Are you ready for this? Yes. Get ready. <laughs> this is the story of how I fucking became the greatest. <laughs> uh, born Bella Ferranc Desho Blasco in Lugos, Hungary, on October 20th, 1882, he's the youngest of four children. He drops out of school at the age of 12 and begins his acting career around the years 1901 and 1902. It's kind of undetermined based off of what I was looking up. But his earliest known roles were in provincial theater in Hungary starting in 1903 to the 1904 season. He then moves to Budapest, Hungary in 1911. Budapest. Yeah, we, we say Budapest because we all saw Black Widow. Right? That's right. We all, Budapest. We all, <laughs> you and I remember Budapest very differently. <laughs> Uh, he moves there where he joins the National Theater of Hungary in 1913 playing several small and supporting roles there is I wasn't able to get a clear guide of this Lugosi and others around Lugosi claim he played bigger roles but then other scholars deem that he was actually playing smaller roles so it's either Lugosi inflating his own story or the scholars got it wrong I don't know regardless he is playing he, he is a working actor in Hungary between 1913 and 1913. In between that, he drops out of the theater and serves as an infantryman for the Austro-Hungarian Army during World War I. He receives injuries during that war that will come to plague him later on uh, with an addiction to morphine, uh, which has been... Uh, it's one of the most noted parts of Lugosi's legacy apart from Dracula, which is kind of a shame, where you have... Was that amplified by um, 
by uh, Ed Wood. Ed Wood movie. Right? The Ed Wood. I Ed thi- Wood movie. I think it. Oh, I think the knowledge of Lugosi's addiction was already well known. He was one of the first celebrities to publicly check into rehab. Like, like he was involved in the decision to release that information. Oh, okay. Huh. Um, and the. To my mind, I don't think Ed Wood popularizes that. I think it humanizes that side of him. Um, uh, do, do we consider it now when we consider Lugosi's career? I think so. Um, but uh, we'll talk about what Ed Wood does for Bella's legacy because I think it is important as it ties into Dracula. Um, but I, I, I guess you'd be right. I guess it would tie into that. I mean, I mean, I, I just if you're. Uh a younger film fan nowadays, you might not, you know what I mean? Like it might be easier to access the movie Ed Wood. Yeah. Than necessarily. You, Cause you love Tim Burton. Yeah. You know what I mean? And, um, I shopped at hot topic. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't say that. No, no. Um, I was a Tim Burton freak. Freak. Yeah. It went yeah. between, uh, eighth grade and ninth grade. I, and that's where ninth grade was when I first saw Ed Wood. Yeah. I had no idea it existed in Tim Burton's canon, but I was getting into Tim Burton and you yeah. read about that and you're like, he made a movie about fucking Plan 9 from Outer Space? And then you realize it's about so much more. Yeah. I love that film because the my two favorite screenwriters of all time wrote that movie. Oh, uh, nice. Alexander and Karaszewski. I fucking love them. Nice. Um, but yeah, I, I I do think that the the idea of his addiction has played into his mythos, but I think more often than not now we're actually getting into his early years. Like one of the big things that happens post the war, he returns to acting. He starts working as an actor in Hungarian silent films. In 1917, he goes under the direction of Michael Curtiz for the Hungarian film As Erides or The Colonel. Hell yeah. And uh, <laughs> hell yeah. Curtiz out, motherfucker. <laughs> What you think I can't direct in two different countries at once? Fuck you. <laughs> I'll make Casablanca and I'll make a Bela Lugosi movie. How about that? Fucking that. <laughs> um, now, oh, Alex, go over there to the right. More to the right. Okay, you're out of the picture. <laughs> <laughs> that was very rude of Curtis to do that to you. Um, but no, oh, it's okay. No, I mean, I, I knew you forgive him. I, I needed an attitude adjustment. It's okay. <laughs> and the only way I was going to get it was from an angry un- Hungarian director. That's right. <laughs> um, but uh, in in his highlight in his silent film career in Hungary, he goes under the stage name Aristlet Olt. Arcelit Olt. I don't know how to pronounce it. Uh, but he goes under a different pseudonym. Uh, and he appears in 12 different films between 1917 and 1918. Around 1918, 1919, uh, Bela Lugosi is doing active work for the Actors Union in Hungary and is very much involved in the Socialist Revolution of Hungary. A revolution that overthrew the government only lasted three months, and by the time that had dissipated, Lugosi and his then wife had to flee the country, first to Vienna, where his wife stayed in Vienna for a little bit and then returned to Budapest, Hungary. Lugosi then carries on into Germany, where he continues to work in some films, uh, uh, amongst which are The Caravan of Death and The Brink of Paradise, as well as a film for F.W. Murnau who the year after his arrival there would make Dracula or Nosferatu. But the key thing that I found is discrepancy in that F.W. Murnau listing is that 
he would have had to have been in Germany in 1921, and we, act, we have been able to pinpoint that he arrived in America on October of 1920. So don't know where that discrepancy comes from. But regardless, one of the studios that he made a picture for, one of the studios that he made a picture for had a logo that had a bat on it, Star Films. So premonition? I don't know. <laughs> we'll see. What we do know is, is that he arrives in New Orleans in 1920, he becomes a crewman on a merchant ship before he makes his way to New York and ingratiates himself in the Hungarian colony of immigrants. He then forms a troop of act Hungarian actors with fellow expatriates that tour the eastern cities, and he eventually finds his way into Broadway with his first big English role being the Red Poppy in 1922. He then carries on more productions before collaborating eventually in a play called The Devil and the Cheese, uh, with Dwight Fry and Frederick March. Interesting. Two other horror icons. Yeah. Slab dabbed it. All of them on stage together. It's the it's the wide, wonderful world of Broadway at this time. <laughs> right. Everybody knew everybody, just like in the film community. Everybody fucking knows everybody. <laughs> <laughs> um, and uh, one of his first American films start getting made at this time is in 1923 with Jay Gordon Edwards' silent melodrama, The Silent Command. He plays the part of a man who is part of a plot to destroy the Panama Canal, but he fails. <laughs> uh, and he was initially miscredited as Belo Lugosi. Belo. 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 They could... Is it that hard to make a fucking A? <laughs> I already changed the last name to make it le- le- very, le- very less confusing. Now you're telling me you can't write a fucking A? <laughs> God damn it. <laughs> Belo. 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 <laughs> it's like the thinner, but Belo. Um, and uh, he has additional film roles that include work for Fox Films, which is prior to them becoming 20th Century Fox, uh, with the silent production The Veiled Woman. And then, of course, Horace Livwright and J- John L. Balderson hire him on for Dracula in 1927. Now we get into Universal's end of this deal. How did Universal get to the point of making monster movies. Well, they were always seemingly to be in financial trouble. Uh, They had Irving Thalberg as a big producing force at Universal at one point until he left to go to MGM by the the late 20s. And so a trend that Universal had towards making prestige pictures had reduced them back to B pictures like Chester's Donkey Party, uh, which is an actual movie. I have no idea what it's about. I just love that title. Sounds, Chester. Sounds bad. It's It sounds like... Or inappropriate. If Randall couldn't get the donkey fucker in Clerks 2 to appear, he yeah. would have showed Chester's he Donkey Party. <laughs> Chester's Donkey Party. Um, and so the... Uh, the one of the things that really kicks off this interest in monsters actually has a lot to do with Carl Lemley Jr., who had worked under his father and also enjoyed stories of the macabre. He had seen productions as a child unfold with such films as The Hunchback of Notre Dame and The Phantom of the Opera. At the age of 21, Carl Lemley Jr. gets the most insane birthday present imaginable control of Universal Studios from his father, Carl Sr., these fucking rich kids. <laughs> <laughs> to be fair, it's the one instance of nepotism where I'm like, no, it's it's totally deserved. I, you know what? I don't care. I don't care. I love this. Keep doing this. Yeah. Um. Now, the only person who was really one of the people who was not a big fan of this uh, decision was Paul Kerner, 
uh, Paul Kerner was a uh, was a heir apparent and protege of Carl Lemley Sr. So when he got passed over for the job in favor of Carl Lemley Jr., you can imagine that Carl Paul Kerner is going to have in the back of his head like I need to find a way to upstage this little brat. And um, but Carl Lemley Jr. is the one who is pursuing something like Dracula, pursuing these horror tales. Carl Lemley Sr. doesn't want to have anything to do with the horror movies. One thing that should be noted about Sr. is that he did not really like these monster movies that made his studio money. Um, And Dracula as a property was a problem for all studios because it seemed unfilmable because of the amount of censorship issues that would be surrounding it. So once they get the way they get past that is because the stage version of Dracula, which is a heavily it's a skeletal frame of Stoker's novel is toned down to the point where it's more, it's very much acceptable. You can get away with it, with doing it. And so within that whole frame of mind, a bidding war begins for the property of Dracula uh, with the Stoker estate, Horace Livewright and Hamilton Dean. Now, there are negotiations that stem with studios like MGM, Columbia, and Fox, and Universal. Universal ultimately wins after Carl Emley Sr. agrees to really aggressively pursue the rights under the condition that Lon Chaney Sr. play the role of Dracula. Wasn't he nervous about doing a horror film? Carl Emily Sr.? Yeah. He was, he, was un, he was unsure. He was unsure. Yeah. He was unsure. The reason why he says Lon Chaney Sr. is because that's box office insurance. Right, yeah. If we've got Lon Chaney Sr., no matter how morbid this movie is, it will make money. And Lon Chaney Sr. had already proven that with roles like Phantom of the Opera, Hunchback of Notre Dame, The Unknown, the original version of The Unholy Three. Uh, this, was a, this was a man who made creeping you out his bread and butter with those fantabulous makeups that he created. Yeah. Um, one of his frequent collaborators in that respect was Mr. Todd Browning, um, who was basically coming in as a package with Lon Chaney Sr., it seems like. Um, he had already worked with Universal before and had his... Uh, discrep- Lon Chaney Sr. had worked with Universal before and had his problems with it before going over to MGM, where he's mainly hanging out with Todd Browning. They coax Browning over here with Cheney to do Dracula. And the rights are then secured for $40,000 for both the screen rights to the book and to the play. And that's important because Universal wasn't sure which they were going to adapt. Carl Emley Jr. wanted a lavish production that adapted heavily from the novel. This adaptation of the novel would have been primarily through the uh, Lewis Broomfield adaptation. He was a Pulitzer Prize winning author who wanted to faithfully adapt Stoker's opening and closing sequences that take place in Transylvania because in the novel they go back to Transylvania. Um, And then the additional would have the additional factors of this created this lavish upscale production in the vein of All's Quiet on the Western Front and any other big production that Universal had prior to this, that it would have bankrupted the studio at this time. Yeah. So they can't do that, so they have to scale completely back and bring on a screenwriter like Eric Stefani to then pitch um, uh, a new script. Additionally, you have the the other writers that uh, would come in to form the final shape, Dudley Murphy and Garrett Fort. 
Um, and they reconstruct the whole script to include all the known set pieces that we see in the first in both of these movies today, as well as Dracula's morbidly memorable dialogue, according to David J. Skull's commentary on Dracula from 1931. Um, and Browning also contributed to the script. However, the only credited screenwriter remains is Garrett Fort. Um, so there are things that Stefani brings initially, a lot of it involving bats. The motif of bats is a Stefani-heavy thing, it seems like. Um, and all seems to be going according to plan. Meanwhile, Bella Lugosi's wondering, why the fuck aren't you hiring me? <laughs> uh, but no, uh, Lugosi was even remotely considered for the part. Um, and Cheney was all set to go, but as soon as they were getting ready to really start on production of this, Lon Chaney Sr. is diagnosed with lung cancer. He only makes one sh sound film in his entire career, a remake of The Unholy Three with uh, former uh, talking point on the show Harry Earls, and passes away, leaving behind a son uh, named Creighton Chaney Jr., uh, or Creighton Cheney. He would go on to become Lon Cheney Jr. later, but that's for another day, folks. Meanwhile... That's a different episode. It's a different episode called The Wolfmane. <laughs> <laughs> or Of Mice and Men. Or Man-Made Monster. Or Horror Island. <laughs> oh, wait, not Horror Island. Lon Cheney Jr. is not in Horror Island. Let's do Of Mice and Men, because it'd be the one that people would least expect. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Welcome to Universal Monster Talk. Today we're going to talk about Lon Cheney Jr. in Of Mice and of Men. Of Mice and Men. The real horror is the depression <laughs> um now um so lon cheney senior dies and so browning and lemley jr go through a slew of other actors these consist of paul muni william courtney ian keith and chester morris none of them seem to work finally even after carl lemley jr has had to wire via western union lugosi's manager saying not interested lugosi present time <laughs> To basically turn Lugosi down. They order a screen test for Lugosi. And he accepts the paltry sum because they know he can get him cheap because he basically opened himself up to be... It sucks to say he opened himself up to this. He pleaded so much for the role that he was willing to accept $500 a week for seven weeks. That's not an untidy sum in Hollywood. However... To put it into comparison, David Manners, the blandest of the bland, <laughs> uh, who whose only real wonderful screen uh, horror credit it might be his performance in The Black Cat by comparison to this, he received $2,000 a week for the seven Jeez. weeks of filming. That's insane. That's, I mean... <sighs> that's, that's fucking nuts, Felix. Is it not correct? <laughs> yeah. This is bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> we, you, we were, you and I were kidding about having time travel powers earlier. Right. I think we need to go back in time and shake the Lemleys down for more money. That's right. Yeah, <laughs> we'll probably get arrested by '30s cops who are ten times more abusive. I would replace Todd Browning. That's just me. Ooh, controversial. <laughs> Except probably not. One thing we we can bring up to the point here is is that Todd Browning's direction on this film is of contention. Um, I have some examples from David J. Skull's book, The Monster Show, that explain a bit more about Todd Browning's supposed involvement. If you'll bear with me for a minute, I do want to pull up. Uh, uh, now, 
there was a gentleman who was on the set as a child by the name of Nicholas Webster, who would go on to become a feature documentarian and television director. Um, he says, Todd Browning, in Webster's recollection, was an intense presence with a bristling mustache and ever-present trailing scarf. Once Browning asked Nick what he wanted to be when he grew up. A director like you, Mr. Browning, the boy replied. Well, said Browning sternly, you'll have to start at the bottom. In retrospect, it was a terrible piece of advice, said Webster. <laughs> um, now, the shooting of Dracula. I'm continuing from David J. Skull's book, by the way. The shooting of Dracula in David Manor's memory was extremely disorganized. Autourist partisans will shudder at the actor's contention that Todd Browning had nothing to do with the direction of his scenes, remaining a dim figure, black in shadows. Carl Freund, nominally the cinematographer, actually directed much of the film and everything that involved manners. This included the concert hall sequence with some of Lugosi's choicest dialogue, several drawing room episodes, including the famous mirror smashing scene, and the chase and destruction of Dracula in the cellars of Carfax Abbey. Since none of the other principal performers are now living, it cannot be ascertained how much else in the film Browning did or didn't direct. Manners' recollections co corroborate the Hollywood filmographs' eventual observations that we cannot believe that the same man was responsible for both the first and latter parts of the picture. The filmograph has been the greater, the great booster of the film during the pre-production and evidently followed Dracula's politics carefully. To complicate matters even further, Manners remembered that the German-speaking Freund directed his share of Dracula with the aid of an interpreter who, Manners recalled, was striking was a strikingly formal presence. He wore right, white gloves on the set, Manners said. Given the difficulties of communication, it is little wonder that much of Dracula has the bizarre quality of a slow-motion drama. Um, yeah, it's... It seems through evidence of, at the very least, Manners' recollection and the filmograph's recollection that Browning barely directed this movie, if at yeah. all. Um, I will say that part of me doesn't want to agree with that, not, be, not, <laughs> not, not out of loyalty to Browning, but there are elements of the past Browning experience, the elements of the macabre, the unknown, the off-to-the-side elements of life the sideshow if you will that find itself stuck in this movie whether through atmosphere or not and there are elements of this film that run like a silent film which is what todd browning was more comfortable with as opposed to the sound film that had been emerging within the last four years of uh, of his career and i have a theory for you okay is it possible that when Lon Chaney Sr. died, yes. Browning lost interest in this project? It might have, yeah. I feel like that that has to be a factor in it. He and Chaney worked together tightly on several productions in the silent film era. Yeah. It's almost as if Dracula then becomes a job for him under contract. Well, and, and if you look at the Spanish version side by side like we did, you know what mm -hmm. I mean? Like Spanish version, the camera language... And just little details here and there, which some of them might be uh, attributed to um, censor. Yeah, we'll get into that. But I, I it just you can see how maybe Todd Browning was just being lazy. 
Yeah. Just be like, put the camera here. You guys go over here, do this. We'll talk about that. We'll we'll talk about that either laziness and or Carl Freund helming the camera. Or uninspired. Yeah. Yeah. Uninspired might be a better term for it. But there are shots in it where it may lend credibility, better credibility to Carl Freund's having directed most of the film because there are shots that I pointed out on Twitter where that only comes when you are literally too busy to even notice the small details. Right, Like, yeah. you might be running yourself ragged. But I do want to point out the fact that you mentioned the Spanish version of Dracula. I did. Now, this is a, this is a phenomenon that is not as common. It's not even common today. We dub, we'll, we'll dub something before we make a whole other version of it. At the time of Sound's emergence... It was common knowledge that the first studio that would make sound productions for exported market, um, so foreign markets like like different parts of Europe and South America, Mexico specifically, that whoever had this market niche would would break ground and make a lot of money. Because dubbing was an ineffective art form at this time, what Universal and several other studios were doing was making Spanish co-productions where simultaneously a, a, a second crew consisting of actors native to the language of the product they're trying to export would create a whole new version of the movie under a different director, usually at night. Um, the cat creeps is one of these, uh, is one of these films as well. And there are scattered other ones, which I want to, I, I want to do a side episode where I kind of list off these other ones, but Needless to say, there's a lot of actors in this version of the film, whether it's Villarías or Tovar or Barry Norton, who are known to be acting in these other co-productions where they're simultaneously filming the Spanish version of a film, while also possessing their own presence in Hollywood in relegated roles to subservience or stereotypes. So there's this backdoor area where actors of foreign language and foreign country are able to make full-fledged productions and in the case of spanish dracula it's been argued many times and i think with good reason yeah that the film is a better product um there's only a couple things it's missing which we'll talk about as we go through the plot yeah now i mentioned paul kerner earlier kerner was the heir apparent to carl lemley senior as i mentioned um kerner was originally going to be producing the english language version of dracula when Carl Emily Jr. gets the job as may, as chief production head, he supervises that production. Kerner's brought off the slate, but he has put on the Spanish production. And he hoped originally with Dracula in his English language version that Paul Lenny would direct it. But Paul Lenny had already died of blood poisoning at this point. So those ideas were off the table. So he gets relegated to producing this foreign language version. And he, there are two things that compel him. Number one, if I'm going to make this, I'm going to one-up Lemley Jr. I'm going to make a better movie. Yeah. The other is that he fell in love with Lexi, fell in love. That's true. With Lupita Tovar. Yep. And how could you not fall in love with her? She, That's right. She's gorgeous. She's beautiful. She's beautiful. Um, And this is the reason why I think Kerners are able to get away with this because he starts off this technique with the filming of the alternate version of The Cat Creeps a version that was so effective that Carl Enley Sr. ordered reshoots of the American version of The Cat Creeps to match the aesthetic of the foreign language version. 
Dracula and Spanish Dracula don't have that same issue. Uh, and I think there's a couple reasons for that. However, this film per- version was produced under the direction of one George Melford. Now, his prior credits amongst them is Rudolph Valentino's film The Sheik, which is a very important film for the image of Rudolph Valentino as this strange foreign lover. Um, and what they would do during the production, one, they would film it overnight. After the crew from the day production of Brownings went away, the night crew would come in, Melford, Kerner, Villarias, Norton, Tovar, everybody involved would be going filming there overnight. Kerner and Melford were reviewing the dailies from Browning's Dracula to figure out how they could improve on the dailies from Browning in their version. So they cheated. (laughs) 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 And I approve of it. There was only one actor who was allowed to view the dailies of the Browning version, and that was Carlos Villarias, Villarias, um, because the studio wanted him to be as similar to Lugosi as possible. They wanted to match that quality. And Lugosi's presence in this movie is the biggest selling point of Dracula uh, in Browning's version, hands down. Um, and Villarias's name, by the way, is shortened to Carlos v- Villar, and in his contract, it's labeled as Charles Villar. <laughs> so uh, everybody kept changing Villarias's name at a constant rate. <laughs> um, so I think within that, we can jump into the plot of Dracula. And to explain to our audience what's going to happen, we're going to be going through the plot of Dracula for both versions simultaneously. Because... Yeah. Very little is different story-wise. Right. There are additional shots Yeah. in the Spanish version. There's additional moments of dialogue, and there are alternate versions of it. We will be pointing them out as we go along. But uh, we open up on Todd Browning's Drac- production of Dracula, produced by Carl Emily Jr., screenplay by Garrett Fort, starring Bella Lugosi, Edward Van Sloan, David Manners, Helen Chandler, Dwight Fry. And right off the get-go, we're being entered in with the, with the second uh, with one of the movements from the second uh, act of Swan Lake, which has very much become a Universal monster anthem. When you think of the Universal monsters, you do think of Swan Lake. Yeah. The 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 oddest comparison probably then. Now it makes sense to us. Somehow. Right. Yeah. Do you think they chose Swan Lake because swans have long, luxurious necks that you could bite into? <laughs> <laughs> No. No. (laughs) I think they chose Swan Lake because Swan Lake is um, a tragedy and it has a melancholy tone to it, obviously. Which Dracula does have. Right. Yeah, especially the novel version. Yeah. And we open up on these glass shots. I'm I'm sorry to give you a serious answer to your joke. No, you're fine. (laughs) just took the steam right out of it. I prefer the sincerity (laughs) to my buffoonery. Okay. Willix, don't worry about it. He's a fucking idiot. <laughs> don't listen to him. You'll be our own man. <laughs> don't be don't be a Bella and give up. Be a Willix. <laughs> um, but no, we open up on these glass mat shots of the rugged peaks of the Borgo past where are found bygone ca- castles of a bygone age with the first words of Dracula being spoken by Carla Lemley, the niece of Carl Lemley Sr., um, who, in a recent episode of Gilbert Gottfried's Amazing Colossal Podcast, they had David J. Skull and 
um, Rick Baker on. And I'd never heard this story before. And all credits to Gilbert Gottfried's Amazing Colossal po- Podcast for giving this getting this information out of Mr. Skull. Apparently, when he was contacting Carla Lemley to interview her for the book, he had already known that she was on the call sheet and was in the film. Carla Lemley had completely forgot that she was in Dracula. <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah. That's awesome. She's, she, her, her reported words to Skull were, no, I don't think I was in that one. <laughs> <laughs> Can you imagine not remembering if you're in one of the biggest horror films of all time? Like, no, I, I simply can't recall. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it was a long time ago, and, so... And it is only one scene. It yeah, is only one scene. She has just a couple of lines. Yeah, before she tumbles into Dwight Fry's lap, and we see that Dwight Fry, as Renfield, right away we're changing the fact of, instead of Harker going to the estate of Dracula, it is Renfield going. So we end up accidentally getting a revision of the novel, but also an origin story for how Renfield gone, went mad. Because in the novel, he goes first before Jonathan Harker goes to yeah. investigate what happened to Renfield. And he's they stop off at a local village. Uh, it's clear that the language is Hungarian uh, from signage on the wall to the what's being delivered by actors on screen before they go into English dialogue. Uh, they're unloading all of the baggage and Dwight Fry goes, no, 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 no. Hold the fuck up. <laughs> <laughs> I'm taking that over to the Borgo Pass tonight. And within the Borgo Pass, we get Michael Visseroff returning to the program. Michael Visseroff, we talked about in Freaks. Um, he was a Russian-born character actor who left his homeland in the wake of the Bolshevik Revolt. And he would be on the New York stage for several years before coming to Hollywood in 1924, first being on contract to Paramount. I told you earlier that there was an interesting story about Visseroff when we were watching the films. Yeah. Actually, for the audience... We watched a double feature of Dracula and Spanish Dracula before doing this, so everything should be pretty fresh in our heads. That's right. Um, but I told you that Visseroff had an interesting story. Visseroff's death was erroneously reported in 1951, to the point where nobody believed he was alive, and he went over to columnist Luella Parsons and pleaded with her to to uh, negate the story in the press by offering a, offering a her in her column a retraction of that. And, a discre- and basically posting a discrepancy of the death. Weeks afterward, as she was actively writing the truth, which seems rare for Luella Parsons, <laughs> uh, it was reported that he had indeed died of about of pneumonia within the weeks of him pleading to tell people, I'm not dead, I'm getting better. That's right. <laughs> Um, but here, Visseroff is alive and well with the twirliest mustache imaginable, telling Renfield, you mustn't go up there. We people of the mountains believe that up in the castle there are vampires. It's like one of the oldest horror tropes here is the the local telling the, the visitor to stay away. The the local and the old man. Like, I mean, yeah. I, think, I think for the modern slasher audience, it's Crazy Ralph. Or even, yeah. I think Loomis falls under it's the Van Helsing. It's death curse. <laughs> You'll never come back again from Castle Dracula. <laughs> the only, I would actually love to see Crazy Ralph in Todd Browning's Dracula. Like, just, <laughs> just riding by on his bicycle. <laughs> Hi, you're all doomed. <laughs> you just, there's that shot of the carriage. And then after the carriage, it's Crazy Ralph on Darby his bicycle. Darby O'Gill. <laughs> Darby O'Gill. Oh, my God. When you pointed that out, I laughed way too hard. So, yeah, he goes to meet the other carriage at the Borgo Pass. 
in this time, we get these epic entrances of Dracula and his wives. Um, it, the differences from the here in the Spanish version thus far, actually, number one, the character of Sarah, who Carla Lemley play, plays to no character name in the English version, gets more screen time. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and it act- actively has a role of going like, do you actually believe there are vampires out there? And the innkeeper's like, but of course, I've seen it. <laughs> I, I've seen it with my own eyes. Don't look at me like I'm crazy. <laughs> um, and But the other differences that pop up is at the arrival of the carriage for Dracula. Well, actually, before that, the entrances of Dracula themselves are different. In the English version, yeah. we see these insert shots of opossums, little uh, bugs crawling out of mini coffins. Yeah. The bugs get their own little coffin. Mm-hmm. That's cute. It's, <laughs> it's kind of like what we do now for cutesy Halloween. Uh, and also armadillos. Armadillos. For some reason. I don't know. They were available. They were available. What's the weirdest fucking animal? You, what? <laughs> I, I'm zombie Todd Browning. What the? What? What's the most insane animal you have on the market? Armadillos. Uh, oh, okay. 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 How many of you can, how many of them can you get for me? <laughs> Four. Okay, I want them all. And am I allowed to eat them afterwards? Yes. Okay, wonderful. I love 1930s Hollywood. I can eat all the armadillos I want. All right, zombie Todd Browning out. I love Let's shoot this movies. Yeah. All the armadillo you can eat. That's why I do it. I don't get paid money, Willix. I got paid in armadillos. <laughs> juicy, juicy armadillos. After you're done eating them, you have a hat. Yes, exactly. Yeah, that's that's why nobody saw me after I retired from filmmaking. I just wanted to wear armadillo hats across the house, and that's not acceptable in polite society. <laughs> it's, oh my goodness! It's crazy. But uh, the difference in the entrances we get in the in Browning's version, we get a push in on Dracula, and we get small inserts of Dracula and his wives. We get we get the hand coming out of the coffin. Yeah, we get Lugosi hand going like I'm here. That's the same. <laughs> yeah, that's the same. There's uh, uh wide shots of the brides that are the same in both because the Spanish version is using outtakes from both. Um, and the English version has that push in on Dracula staring at the camera, which is off center because they had to move the matted image over for the optical soundtrack which at this point sound on film had been achieved. Yeah. And we get him ascending the stairs from there. In the Spanish version, you got excited over this. I did. The I, the coffin opened and all this mist smoke came out of the coffin and you and Dracula rises out of the mist and I was like, "Son of a bitch. That's <laughs> awesome." You kept you kept yelling like, "God damn it." Why? It was so cool. Why can't we have this in the American one? I, I just like that little detail. Is is just like okay? They obviously cared a little bit more. Yeah. On the Spanish language version, it's it's Kerner going like, "I'm gonna fucking show Carl yeah. Jr. what's what's what." But I mean, and L- Lugosi's great. Like, if it was a perfect world, it would have been. I would have had um, Dwight Fry, Bella Lugosi, and who played um, Van Helsing. Uh, in the Spanish version? No, Edward, in the English version. Edward Van Sloan. Edward Van Sloan. Have those three in the Spanish version. It would have been amazing. Yeah, I agree. And you get Lupita Tovar replacing Helen Chandler. Yeah. And you get uh, 
uh, you get uh, actually I would take Barry Norton over David Manners. I think I would too. Now we did agree that Barry Norton uh, looks a little bit like Rudy Valley, <laughs> like a baby version, like a baby version of it. Yeah, but he's still he's got a suave debonair charm about him. I believe that Argentinian man would seduce Lupita Tovar. I do believe it. And he eventually could grow facial hair. He could. He could. It would be an interest. It would be like an Orson Welles beard, right? Yeah, you know where it's just mm-hmm. like you, it. It almost looks like he shouldn't have it, but you'll accept it. Yeah. <laughs> um. And not only do we get that billowing smoke, but we also get a different arrangement and placement of the coffins. So like the coffins are now in a group of three, so they're like tightening the shot almost, which is really strange. It seems like all the most of the shots in the Spanish version were 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 tightened. Yeah, and they're almost like trying to like condense the space in certain sections and yeah. only allow it to be wide when it needs to be wide. Right. And they do the same with the carriage. And there's a key difference in the carriage in both the shooting script and in the novel and in the Spanish version, it's made perfectly clear that Dracula as the coachman should be covered, his face should be covered so that he's not recognized. The Spanish version adheres to this. The Browning version doesn't, and I wonder if it's because, well, if I'm only getting paid $500 a week, you're going to show my fucking face. (laughs) I mean, I probably, it could have been. How dare that asshole cover up my goddamn face? (laughs) Or it also could have been, you know, another instance of of Browning not caring, you know what I mean, where Lugosi's like, just pulls it down. Look, I I don't know what these words mean. Cover his face. (laughs) Just shoot it. Just, I'm, I'm tired. My friend is dead. Is the is the camera set up? Then go. Yeah. Look, let's be honest. Lon was supposed to be here. My friend Lon. And he's gone now. But we're still here, and I'm fucking depressed. So just shoot this shit. Um, Early preview of Clint Eastwood. <laughs> How many takes was that? Two? Boy, that was a lot. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I don't Leo. need a fucking key light. No, 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 Leo. Your makeup looks fine for J. Edgar. It looks just fine. <laughs> What's that? No, Bradley, don't worry. That baby looks totally realistic. <laughs> What's that, Tim Robbins? No, we won't give you any further clar- character clarification. You're a creep. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Albeit a sympathetic monster, but still a monster. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> What's that? No, I won't have black soldiers in Flags of Our Fathers. There was only white people in World War II. Right. <laughs> <laughs> um, but the carriage scene in the Spanish version, we also get this alternate angle of the carriage dropping off Renfield and then the driver just tossing his luggage on the ground. Yeah, almost <laughs> like he was in, panic, in a panic. You're on your own, motherfucker. Goodbye. Yeah. Wee! <laughs> and Renfield gets on the carriage. In the Spanish version, we get a lot more uh, shots of Renfield looking outside, being scared. We see a fire burning off in the distance something evil happened there we yeah. don't know maybe that's the firefly family burning up their residence after being caught by george george widell <laughs> i don't know yeah like, yeah that i would imagine the fireflies being in romania at this time <laughs> yeah um and uh but uh there is a shot uh in the english language version of a bat um uh leading the horses this is a this is an invention of Eric Stefani as the screenwriter. He has another bat thing that appears later on in this film, or at least didn't appear because it got changed in the script, thankfully. Um, but Renfield arrives, and he wants to know why the driver's being so damn careless, but oh no, the driver's not there. 
oh my god, Willix, is something scary gonna happen? I feel like that would have been very scary in oh my in god, thirties. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and also that shot of the carriage pulling uh, the horses j- pulling it without without any driver. Yeah, that's mm-hmm. gotta be that's gotta be eerie as all heck. And we were yeah. talking about like it's nice that the studio has enough space for them to stop it short like that to to give it enough like enough length. And Renfield walks in the door. We get this beautiful combination of a set and matte extension, glass shot extension of the interior of Dracula's house. It looks gorgeous. This was shot on stage 12. Uh, and that stage is, as of 1998, still in continuous use. I have no idea if it's still in use to this day. Um, I'm hoping that that and stage 28 uh, with the Phantom set are still in pristine condition. I think the Phantom set is for sure. Yeah, the Dracula interior probably not, not so much. I know the Bates house is still there. They got to keep the Bates house. Yeah, you can't get rid of that. I, 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 I made so much money for you fucking people <laughs> <laughs> through sequels that I didn't direct. <laughs> yeah, um, and we get the entrance of Dracula here. Renfield approaches and. We get the entrances of Dracula and Bela Lugosi ascending down the stairs in all of his Hungarian elegance. That suave debonair man just belts out, I am Dracula. And Renfield goes like, oh, oh my God, I, I, was so, I, I was so afraid. I don't know why Renfield is Paul Lind right now. Um, but uh, he, he, is, he is unsure of his surroundings at this point. He's unclear as to where the driver went. He's not putting together in the English version that the same person who drove him, whose face was clearly visible, (laughs) is Dracula. However, he is in such a fright that I believe he would forget his face. Dwight Fry looks like he is eternally scared in this movie. Yeah. Um, And we... We get the eternal line, listen to them, children of the night, what music they make. We get a shot that I think is is genius in both adaptations of Dracula walking towards the webs. We cut away to Renfield looking surprised, and then Dracula's on the other side of the cobweb. The cobweb has been undamaged and untampered. It's better than having a CGI shot to me of Dracula walking through the web. Yeah. I think every version that does this going forward has the advantage of technology that ends up being a detriment. Because it always feels fake compared to skipping ahead and painting a picture in your mind's eye. And it's not necessarily to give Browning a bunch of credit for that because I'm sure a lot of this was scaled back and they absolutely had no idea how they'd be able to do it. That is innovative to do that. And that does come within the editing. And Todd Browning had to have some knowledge of how this cut was going to turn out. Yeah. So I'm sure he wasn't dumb. (laughs) <laughs> you know, he might have just been disinterested. I didn't say he was dumb. No, we just said he was bored. <laughs> <laughs> I want to go home. <laughs> um, and we get, uh, we we get a classic instance of Dracula subverting religion uh, with a passage from De- Deuteronomy with "The blood is the life, Mister Renfield." Um, there's a lot of subversion of religion, as you were alluding to. I was going to ask you, do you find this to be just as scandalous as it might have been back in 1930 from a religious standpoint? No, not at all. I'm going to make the argument I do. I just... Um, I'm sure that it's been softened for the religious community, but... I didn't grow up in a very, like, a super strict religious house. We just grew up in a religious house. Um, 
And if I was watching Dracula, my parents would have been like, oh, it's fine. It's a classic movie. It's black and white. Right. You know what I mean? But imagine if you were born in the uh, born in the ni- late 1920s or the early 1920s and you were going to see Dracula. I'm sure, I'm sure it shocked somebody who was deeply religious, I'm sure. Oh, my. Oh, oh no. Mildred, no. <laughs> this this man is is perverting the resurrection of our Jesus Christ. Well, and they, they also allude to sex, you know, mm-hmm. in some of the shots and even like homosexuality and Oh yeah, it's we, just kind of a combination of all that stuff. Yeah, we'll get to that, but there's like I wanted to point back to the Deuteronomy that comes oh, from Deuteronomy 12:23. Yeah. The reason I wanted to bring it up is because it's an injunction against consuming blood. And that's how Dracula subverts it. It's like it's it's using the Bible's words against, <laughs> right? But they, there's also like a specific, like later in the in like the New Testament, Jesus's blood is used as like a life giving thing. Yeah, you know, in the so form of just, in the form of wine. Yeah, which yeah. we'll find out later on that no one ever drinks wine. wine. <laughs> um, but we get him in going into cat, cat, Dracula's chambers. Uh, this created a problem for the sound department. Sound department at this time early on is still trying to figure out what the fuck they're doing. Arguably, Todd Browning's trying to do the same thing when it comes to sound filmmaking. He's used to silent films. Sound filmmaking throws him off in a lot of directions. Regardless of how we're talking about his attitude on set, it's very clear he still hadn't gotten the reins down on how to direct a sound film. One of the issues that was caused from for the sound department was the crackling of the fire in the corner. According to publicity of the day, they had to shut down the set for hours at a considerable expense until the crackling sound from the fire died down. Hours? Hours. Why didn't they just move the ashes out? I mean, I mean are that, you... Are, that, no, no, <laughs> no. Wait, are we going to get back into your time machine to you said that you could be a production manager on Dracula? Yes, yes. <laughs> All right, guys, we gotta wait a couple hours and shoot it. What the hell? Jesus. Hi, my name is Matt Willix. I um I read about what you're doing, and you need to stop this. <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness! You're wasting all this valuable I, fucking it, well, time. Well, <laughs> well, what did you say? They like they released this information or something? So here's what I wrote down in my notes: filming was delayed. I can set that this this was according to studio publicity and okay publicity. Oh, yeah. that that makes sense. Yeah, that okay. makes sense. Now this could be a publicity story. However, it does track because there were problems early on in the sound craze, even as after 1929, when we already have full fledged sound films. A year after we already have the little Ce- little Caesar and the Public Enemy. Sound's still creating an issue. Now, the misnomer that we once again have to keep bringing up is just because sound was new does not mean you couldn't move the camera. As we've learned from the Spanish version, you can clearly move that fucking camera. (laughs) Well, they could have clearly brought in a shovel and a wheelbarrow to take the crackling... (laughs) The crackling... Or is that future man with the shovel doing here? (laughs) I mean, if it was that... If it was that detriment... I mean, well, Matt, we need to go back in time with a, with a shovel and save oh them some money. Oh, my God. Save Carl Lumley Sr. some money. Yeah. It could be the financial break he needs yeah. to keep the studio later on when they're trying to make showboat. Right. I thought you were going to say they couldn't afford a wheelbarrow. <laughs> well, it was universal. I wouldn't. 
I would. It wouldn't surprise me if all of a sudden Carl Lemley Jr. or Senior said, "We can't afford a wheelbarrow." Right. <laughs> we can look. We can barely afford to pay Lugosi less than he's worth. Right. We can't. Oh, we certainly can't afford David Manor's salary. We can't afford a fucking wheelbarrow. No, you've got to wait for the sound to die down. It's I, cheaper that way. Okay. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> The inverted logic of filmmaking. Yes. Now, there is also some jumps in here in the English version, which aren't really present in the Spanish version. The Spanish version plays out pretty damn full with dialogue that is not in the English version inserted into the Spanish version. Um, There is a scene in the Spanish version that we see that the English version does not have that does cut. And you can notice the cut because Dracula has... Renfield's valise in his hand at one point and then suddenly it's flat on the table when they cut away to Renfield. There's something in between that according to the shooting script has a correspondence, uh, has a conversation between Renfield and Dracula where Dracula is reminding him, were you sure to destroy all your correspondence with people alerting them to the fact that you were coming here? Like basically Renfield removing any evidence that he was coming to Transylvania so that nobody can trace him back. And that scene is cut for what reason in the English version, I don't know. I have no idea. I One of the things that baffles me about the English language version is that there are weird cuts in this movie for no real particular yeah. reason that would even become a censor issue. Um, and additionally, we get this with we get the discussion of like, you know, I'm here to sign the lease on Carfax Abbey. He hands him the lease. It looks like a call sheet for the <laughs> for the schedule yeah. for that day. Um, and we get uh, the – I love this delivery. It, it, it's a little awkward because it's early sound filmmaking and it's clearly throwing Todd Browning. But you have Dracula addressing Renfield going, I have chartered a ship to take us to England. We will be leaving tomorrow evening. Everything will be ready. Let's talk about Lugosi for a second and how creepy he is and how appropriate he is for this role. Like, this is... I think it still sends shivers down my spine watching his performance. It, it, I don't think that's ever changed and will ever change. No, he's... Um, it's, it's genius um, how, how effective he is even today. Yeah. And a lot of his early, like there, I think there's this misnomer that he had learned his lines for this film phonetically. When you're doing the sound, the, the Broadway version of, uh, of Dracula prior to this and other f- productions on Broadway prior to this, you're learning your phonetics early on. He did yeah. learn his parts phonetically, but by the time he got to Dracula, he was able to one, know the Dracula part pretty well, but two probably had a better grasp on English than he did when he arrived. He still never really got the hang of it. Yeah. As his son would later attest that he never really got a handle on the language at all, which is kind of exemplified by Martin Lando's performances, Bella and Ed Wood. Um, and we also see some allusions to imagery in Nosferatu, particularly in this scene with the cutting of the bread where Renfield cuts his thumb. And then there's a pushing on Dracula going, oh, my God. Snacks. <laughs> so lunch, 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 lunch. <laughs> and we see him slowly creeping in, and he's just about to get it with all of a sudden, oh, no, Jesus. <laughs> Cross conveniently goes down, 
and Dracula pulls his hands over his uh, over his face. In the Spanish version, he puts the cape over him. Yeah, which I think is sorely missing from the English language version. He needs the cape in there. Yeah, he used the cape a lot more in the Spanish language yeah. version. He, I mean, it's almost Villarías was just like, oh my god, we can, we I can. I I get to play with this cape. Fucking cool. <laughs> I mean, it's just more foreboding, you know. It's just a a better visual yeah tool. I I agree. And also like anytime Lugosi does have the cape on, it feels much better. It it feels more appropriate. When he's just in the tuxedo, I don't I don't feel the same impact. He's not as threatening. He's not as threatening. But when he is when he but when he's in character so deep, he can move past that, especially yeah. in the scenes in the drawing room later on. Yeah. Because he's, one, the only magnetic presence in the room apart from maybe Van Sloan and occasionally Renfield, depending on who's in the scene. But number two, he also, he moves deliberately. Anytime Bella Lugosi moves in this film, if you've never seen the film, you're kind of wondering what's he going to do next. And you might see it as a modern audience in a stilted manner. I kind of look at it as like, what is this madman going to do next? <laughs> well, he's, he's also, Dracula is probably on, on also an individual who doesn't need to move fast. No, he doesn't. No. I'm a, I'm a fucking vampire. Yeah. <laughs> I, can, I can turn into a bat and literally come at you in five seconds. Yeah. It's like Jason or Michael Myers. <laughs> they don't have to move fast. Uh, that does remind me of the behind the scenes video where Jason Voorhees said, yeah, in order to get prepared for the role, I I studied Bela Lugosi's movements. Yeah. (laughs) It was a real challenge. Bela Lugosi, much better actor. And obviously he's allowed to speak and I can't. (laughs) (laughs) But we get, my uh, movie has boobs. (laughs) My movie has boobs. The Spanish Dracula (laughs) has boobs as we'll find out later. Right. But my I think the thing that uh elevates me above Dracula is obviously boobs. Right. <laughs> Wouldn't you agree, Michael? Yeah, I would agree. <laughs> oh my god. Oh Michael. <laughs> Michael Oh no. Um but uh we get Dracula leaving Renfield for the night. He goes, Good night, Mr. Renfield. Spanish version has the better exit, hands down. Yeah. Has the better exit, but the scene that follows, I'd argue Browning one-ups Melford. I agree. Yeah, so the scene involves Renfield looking out the window in terror and in fright. We see behind him that Dracula's wives already slinky in their gowns, ready to go. Fun fact, the first shot of an on-screen vampire we ever see in full is one of Dracula's wives. It's not Dracula. And Dracula's first wife that we see is Geraldine Dvorak, who was formerly Greta Garbo's stand-in at MGM. So oh. we do get this, we get some like weird pedigree in here with it. And we also have Dorothy Tree and Cornelia Thell, um, whose real name was Mildred Pierce. <laughs> <laughs> She's just like, no, 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 I, I got to change that. Yeah. It's just... It's going to be too confusing down the line. Right. And they're not going to cast me in the title role of my own movie. Right. It's just not going to happen. Um, now, in the script, it has Renfield removing the cross intentionally. In the Spanish version, we see that too. There's a jump in the English version where we don't see that. But what we do see is one of the images that inspired Stoker early on in the creation of Dracula in the first place, which is the wives descend on Renfield and then Dracula appears from outside in the window, 
moves his hand and goes, stop women. He's mine. <laughs> this, this cat is mine. I take <laughs> him. You, I gave you armadillos to eat. <laughs> and then he crouches down for Renfield. And there was a, sh- a scene in the shooting script uh, or in one of the later drafts that proposed a camera placement on the floor from Renfield's perspective as the brides approach him. So there would have oh, been this that pu- been cool. I know, right? And we've talked about, we were we were marveling at one of the shots later on where Renfield is crawling on the floor towards the woman, which is a third-person perspective. If you just imagine, like, again, Browning's not an idiot. He no. knows how he, he, he could... It's almost as if though he didn't realize just because you have sound doesn't mean you have to lose your dynamic shot quality. Yeah. You could be doing some of the same things you do in sound. You just got to adjust and know when sound's going to play in and not. And, you know... A spoiler for this, there are three versions of this film made. The Spanish version, the Browning version, and there was a silent version with intertitles. Yeah. With specific studio notes on where the titles would be intercut for the theaters that still weren't wired for sound yet. Sound wasn't fully wired into theaters until the mid-30s. Not every theater had it at this point, so they were still needing silent versions of these movies. Um, but yes, we get Dracula consuming Renfield for the for the kill, quote unquote. The, the 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 transformation. And you mentioned homoerotic subtext. Yeah. Because yeah. you 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 see Dracula like get down on the ground and he, you know, is leaning down to suck Renfield's blood. So and that was just, you know I'm sure that was imagery you didn't see a lot, which just, you know, man on man. Yeah, I you know I have a I have a. I have to wonder. Dude on dude. Dude on dude. Oh, oh, you mean man on man? Oh, we had plenty of that in Hungary. We're a little <laughs> bit more liberal than you idiots out here. No, no, no. You know, fun fact: we knew about divine before you knew about divine. John Waters. Oh, he's been an eternal for years. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> been around since 1927. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, made a shit film in Hungary. <laughs> <laughs> and not, not not the quality of the film. I mean, somebody literally ate shit. In that movie. <laughs> uh, but no, you're you know, I do wonder. I almost wanted to look at the censor notes if that was possible, and be like, what what was in danger of being lost? Right. I have a feeling that a, there's a good chunk of stuff that's cut from English Dracula just because of the censors alone. And it's a shame that none of the footage exists anymore. Most likely. Meanwhile, though, the Spanish version is not subjected to the same censorship laws. Yeah. And as we're going to learn here in a little bit, the Spanish version is able to get away with some pretty risque stuff. Uh, but the one thing it doesn't cross is that homoerotic subtext, which I wonder if that was a decision of Melford or an insistence of Conor because of the censors, or if he's watching the English dailies and going like, well, we're going to do something completely different then. Like, there's no definitive answer, really. Right. There's a lot of notes about what was in the script versus what came out on film where nobody has a clear answer as to what actually happened. All we have is the final result of the film. And one of the things we get after this attack on Renfield is the boat traveling scene. Now, I told you that Eric Stefani was involved in the bat leading the horses. Originally, in the play version, they had Dracula arriving by plane. And Eric Stefani 
in the script in the scripts that he was writing where it was pitched that he would still fly by plane said hey what if the wings of the plane resembled a bat <laughs> now oh, no. first of all that's some david o selznick level meth- methamphetamine shit going through stefani's head right there <laughs> <laughs> what if it was a bat plane <laughs> but the other one is if he had done it if he had done it Batman wouldn't have been the first one with a bat plane. That's true. That's true. <laughs> Bella Lugosi would have been the first bat- Batman. <laughs> Where are the other drugs going? Well, well, actually, that's not that's not true. Swear to me, because <laughs> I didn't. Detective Comics twenty seven come out in nineteen thirty eight. Oh, okay. All right. But he would have been Batman. Oh, that's before true. Before Batman, I had a. I, I was. Oh, wow. You could have an interview with Bob Kane going like, "Yes, it was the shadow. It was Pulp Comics of yeah. the day, and also that Bat Plane in Dracula. I thought that was pretty damn. I don't, I don't know why I thought it came out before Dracula. That's weird. No, well, I mean, well, Detective. It's okay. Was it was actually? I'm comic, getting old. Was it's fine. <laughs> I'm just gonna probably just start spouting shit. <laughs> You know, it's just not true. Did you guys know that Batman came out before Jesus Christ? <laughs> Batman was there before Jesus. Do you know, that's funny you say that, but I actually, uh, so I, I used to I used to do this yearly uh, movie party for me and my friends, um, and we it was Batman Day. It was called Batman Day, and it was before DC Comics like started an official Was this Batman around the time day. we were going to film school? I can't remember. Yeah. I feel like, mm-hmm. okay, okay. I was like, I remember one of our holidays where, yeah. You, I, I could, but Batman Day doesn't ring a bell. So the first Batman Day, we just watched, like, watched Batman stuff all day long. And then after that, we started, like, so the first half of the day, we'd go to, like, a park and read Batman comics. And then we'd go to my house, order pizza, and watch Batman movies. Uh huh. But I actually, <laughs> I adapted, um, didn't Kevin Smith had like a Batman prayer at the beginning of um oh fat um fat man on fat batman. man on batman he had a in our he had like a batman version of the lord's prayer oh okay and so I this would, would have been a later batman fest for you cuz yeah. fat man on batman didn't come until after we were out of film school oh really yeah oh okay but regardless the batman prayer well i mean well, I mean, it w- I think it was around the same time. Yeah, I was just trying to get it in my head, but the, regardless, yeah. the Batman prayer. Anyway, Batman prayer. Yeah. I just was like, oh, yeah, Batman prayer. Yeah. That's <laughs> Dear Lord. Our Father, our our our, our Savior who art in Gotham, uh, I think uh, is how it starts. Uh, 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 Cal will be thy name. That's right. Yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah, Cal will be thy name. I remember part of the line. I, I haven't listened to Bat- Fat Man on Batman. Neither have I. Yeah. But uh, anyway. But yeah, you're right. Cal will be thy name. Uh, but uh, the but regardless, yes, we could have gotten a bat plane. Instead, we get a boat, and the boat boat footage we're getting now originally. And a boat's in the book. Yes, the boat's in the book. Yeah, boat's in the book. Boat's in the Spanish version, as we know too. Yeah. Um. Now, originally, if they had had the budget to do that lavish version that Lemley Jr. was wanting, we would have gotten independently produced footage of the boat rocking and swaying. It would not have been as elaborate as this, though. The footage of the boat when Dracula or Renfield is not on screen is coming from the Stormbreaker, a silent film uh, uh, that had been made by Universal prior. Now, the one way you can notice this right away as a eagle-eyed viewer, uh, 
especially of classic cinema, is that the frame rates are different. They'll be cutting away from slower frame rate of the sailors at sea, and then they'll cut to a regular 24 frames a second of Renfield going, Master, Master, <laughs> do you hear me, Master? Let's Dracula out of his coffin. He goes, you promise, won't you? You promise that you'll give me lives. Not big lives, but small lives. <laughs> and they're... <laughs> I mean, I can't do it. I'd have to hear it again. Yeah, that, there it is. You got it. <laughs> I can do Dwight Fry. You can well. do Dwight, Dwight Fry. Rats! Rats! Uh, well, that's not happening yet. But speaking of rats... In the Spanish version, we watch rats crawling all over Renfield in yeah, the dock. That's just another like cool little detail. There was a, there was a thing, and I can't remember in the commentary how they said it specifically, and in the notes that I read from the book, but it seemed like rats were a contention for the American censors. It just seemed too filthy or disgusting for whatever the vision was supposed to be. It's either the censors or the studio. I don't know. What I do know is that we have the evidence on screen that Melford and Kerner are able to get away with multiple rats on screen, whereas the English version doesn't. Maybe, and, maybe that's why they used possums and armadillos. Yeah, because they're getting around the idea of the rats, yeah. yeah. You, the reason why we're wondering armadillos is because that's a, valid, that's a valid question to ask out of any production taking place in Transylvania. Why armadillos? Are, are armadillos even native to fucking... Hungry? <laughs> I don't. I have no idea. I thought they were listeners a Texas of, thing. Listeners, listeners of the Ballyhoo, please let us know if there are armadillos in Hungary. Uh, we 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 need to know. We absolutely need to know. Um, what we don't need to know is what Dracula is going to do to all the people on this boat. He's going to eat them. <laughs> <laughs> He's going to eat their blood. We like. I don't know if you know this. He's going to eat their blood. And I will say, if you were watching this in the 1930s, that footage would have seemed seamless. Today, you can obviously tell because the lighting conditions are different. It doesn't take away from the impact, though, because they're sparingly using Dracula in the foreground corner. So it's almost like it's almost like intercutting that footage still works, even though you can tell there's a difference because of the scene that follows where we have a harbor master yelling out to tell people to back off and explaining what's happened to the people on the boat, that harbor master played by uh, Todd Browning. Now, he doesn't sound like zombie Todd Browning, but that's okay. I changed my voice after I died and resurrected myself because I had to take care of burning down Hollywood to the ground, if you recall from our last episode. Um, and uh, we see a silhouette of uh, the the captain of the boat tied to the wheel. To, to the to, ship's wheel. To the helm, yeah. Yeah. And in the Spanish version, the dialogue explains that his hands are frozen stiff to the helm. So Kerner's changing every fucking thing he yeah. wants to. I think it's more effective that he's tied to the to the helm of the boat because it makes it seem more ritualistic. Yeah, it, it fits with Dracula. This is a this has become a game to him over hundreds of years. Yeah. I mean, why else would he allow the brides to close in on Renfield and then go back off? <laughs> like, and we get that beautiful shot that both versions use from the silhouette to the damage in the ship to the entrance to the hatch of the bowels of the ship. In the Spanish version, we get uh, Renfield laughing maniacally from a traditional angle. 
here we get Browning being superior. This is a silent film image, if there ever was one. The only difference is, of course, <laughs> and you see that Renfield has gone completely mad. And the image of Dwight Fry staring up at up, up at you with his mad eyes is my favorite shot in this movie. It's a good down. one. Yeah. It's just fucking perfect. Yeah. It's beautiful. Um and we are then transferred we are then established that we are in London after a newspaper clipping reporting the ghastly happenings on the ship. And we get this very foggy shot of London with the words London. Um and uh just in case you didn't know, did you know where we were, Willix, when you saw a lot of fog being pumped through a city street? I did. You did. You you did. I did. You knew where the, you know where we were. Yes. You didn't think we were in Portugal, right? No. You didn't think we were in Canada, right? No. London. Canada. Canada. No. <laughs> you will come to me, Miss Harker. Okie dokie. <laughs> oh, you got to be. Oh yeah, that was. That, I apologize to the Canadian audience if they exist. Um, but we get something that isn't in the Spanish version, which is the Flower Girl, which the Flower Girl has become uh, a very heavy part of um, establishing Dracula's lore. Um, and the Flower Girl, Skull theorizes that it's Anita, uh, Anita Doddard, who would later become Anita Harder, who would end up working in community theater in Santa Monica and recounting the time of how she was Dracula's first victim. So she's an actress that kind of went nowhere. But we know her because she says, flower for your buttonhole, sir. Yeah. <laughs> and Dracula just stares at her going like, I don't want the flower button. I want you. <laughs> and, and Yeah, and the imagery of that shot's very uh, intimate, kind of erotic. It recalls, a little bit. it recalls the imagery that we're supposed to conjure up in our minds when we think Jack the Ripper. Yes. Very much a Jack the Ripper kind of element of it. And there is something about Horace Livwright having the right idea from the play onward to cast a foreign actor in this role. What Something we should talk about with Dracula, which I'm sure you're aware of, is the xenophobic elements of the Dracula story at large. The idea of a plague spreader or a foreign influence invading London. Yeah. Um, David J. Skull has theorized, and I don't think it's un- unfounded, that... Dracula, as written, comes with quite possibly unintentional, but nevertheless, there elements of stereotypical anti-Semitic depiction, not unlike Shylock in *The Merchant of Venice*, where you have this something that's uh, that's a standard of its era permeating the character. Now, here's the thing. I don't think that that's ultimately present in the final version of this screen version of Dracula. It seems like the least important element of it. Um, I do think, I do think the idea of something different invading your area, which carries xenophobic tendencies is still present, but it's not being intended that way. Carl Emily Jr. is literally making a horror movie. Well, and if you look at a lot of the, Universal classic monster like monster movies, a large number of them take place in Europe. You they know, do. and very. I, I, when, and what's the one that makes? There's a couple that take place in America, but not. Yeah, I I can't, I I could. I, I mean, I know Invisible Invisible Woman does. Yeah, and Invisible Agent takes partial place in America. But I mean, like, um, 
you know they they've said that 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 there was no real break after World War One. It was just a yeah, just a um, what's it called a a delayed a delayed. A, a, there's like a delayed fuse. Yeah, before, yeah. Before the before it's lit up again by Hitler's rise yeah. to power. When I think Hitler, I think the Nazi Party had been around for a few years at this point. Uh, 1931, they had already emerged. Um, yeah. They wouldn't seize full power until 1933. No, I know, but I mean, they they had been a thing for like a, yeah. a close to a decade, I think. Yeah, they had. Now, H- Hitler's prominence in it wasn't the same. No, no, and I'm not, I'm not saying Dracula's a, like a... I'm just saying there's a fear of a, a European element there. Yes, there you know? is. There is a fear of that. And this isn't so much present... And uh, Dracula, but one of the key elements of any universal horror movie, because of the way it handles disfigurement, and arguably, not even arguably, unquestionably, horror films that supersede the universal monster movies are dealing with the direct aftermath of World War One, And so the disfigured looks that Cheney would put on. Right. Were resembling the war, the the veterans of war that were coming out of the war, who were disfigured, right. scarred, both chemically, physically, internally, even. Yeah, I you could make an argument that Renfield's madness has has connotations of PTSD. Yeah, uh, he, he went off. Yeah, to a foreign land, came, came back, back, changed, came yeah. back, changed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now the difference is obviously we. The madness didn't spread in this kind of manner, but, right? But you could make those allusions to it, and I think that Dracula himself is representing this old world power that's kind of encroaching on a modern sensibility. Because, as you pointed out, and we kind of we've talked about this in the Bride of Frankenstein episode, but let's dive into it a little bit. The Universal Monsters movies don't take place in a specific time period. Clearly, it's modern. But clearly, if it needs to be old world, it can be old world. It's any time land. It's kind of both. Yeah. Yeah. It's like it's a it's a land without time, which has carried on sparingly over the years. It's the one thing that doesn't really get lifted into further horror films that attempt to tackle the monsters. You're either in the present or you're in the past. It's like Bram Stoker's Dracula by Coppola and Mary Shelley's Frankenstein by Kenneth Branagh are both firmly set in the past. Um, and uh, Robert De Niro's performance as the Frankenstein monster is firmly set into nowhere. Um, <laughs> oh, well. <laughs> it's nothing against Bob De Niro. It's just ah, that movie could have been great. Anyway, uh, and all, but the Invisible Man remake, by contrast, I haven't seen it yet. You haven't seen? Oh, back. I'm not a perfect fanboy. No, okay? you'll love it. That's the thing. I just <laughs> I'm concerned because I know you'll love it. You know, um, there's a pretty there's a good modern horror movie that actually does a good job of. <gasps> it starts in a modern setting and then it goes to a. Um, oh, I thought you were going to say it follows. No, no. It follows. Screw it follows. Oh, <laughs> controversial. Yeah. Hot Contro- take. Hot take here. Why don't you just watch Halloween? <laughs> Well, I'll I'll take that answer any day of the week. Thank well, you. Hey, I have a question, Willis. Yes. Why do, why do you hate fun? 
I do hate follows. I like I like it follows. I don't think it's as great as people say it is. Okay, okay. Anyway. I, yeah, that's fair. Um, oh, God, what but is what, that? What is the movie that you were thinking of you that, that starts in the present and goes to the past? A Cure a cure for Wellness. Oh, Cure for Wellness. The um, yeah. I still haven't seen that, but that's uh, Gore Verbinski's joint. Yeah. Well, I, it's I love that movie. Does but, it does it descend into the past or does it exist in every time as we were talking about? So it it just it just feels like there's a time shift in it. And I also think he was inspired by Universal Monster movies for the later half of that movie as well. Mm. Um it's a great one. I have to check it out now. Yeah. I I, I remember seeing the bad reviews and I was just like, Well, I, Those I don't have don't any... see <laughs> I know I know I shouldn't look at critics' reviews. I really have stopped within the last two years of looking at the Rotten Tomatoes meeting meter because I can't trust it anymore. There's one English guy who Brian is a fan of, and I started reading his reviews. And Brian was like, "Read this guy," and I, I forget his Our name. Our friend Brian Richards, by the way, Brian who Richards. will be on this show eventually. I'm gonna fucking get him on this show. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, yeah, no. So I, I, I like that you made that allusion to it. I was gonna say too that it's funny that Joe Johnston's remake of The Wolfman firmly decides to be in the past, but it, it finds a middle ground by taking place in what clearly could be the music hall scene of London. Yeah. Because you have Lawrence Talbot in music hall before going back to the estates and dealing yeah. with Daddy Werewolf. <laughs> Big Daddy Werewolf. <laughs> um, I, which I love. The, the Wolfman remake, by the way, guys, is really fucking good. You gotta, you gotta get the director's cut. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. Yes. Um, now, I, I would always make an argument. When I first saw that film, I initially wanted it to be only PG-13 so that you could allude to the violence and not show the violence. But when rewatching it recently, I'm like, no, that's the next logical step is to allow some blood in here. Yeah. He's not, Joe Johnson's not grotesque with it. No. And also, you get Rick Baker finally making Wolfman. Yes. The way Wolfman's supposed to be. Yes. I like American Werewolf in London, but the Wolfman's what it's supposed to be. <laughs> um, but what what I will tell you right now, though, one thing you are not going to see is the full aftermath of the Flower Girl. You do see you do see the uh, the cops and the crowd. You, you see the body. You see the body, yeah, but you don't see the fang marks. Yeah. Which we do see in the Spanish version right. on Lupita Tavar, amongst others. I wonder, like, was that a violence thing, or was that like? A... I th- I think it was something that we, something that Jack Hanley and I pondered upon. Or was that a? It shows penetration. Ooh, and I was, yeah, that, see, that was the thing. See, the way I show, said that was kind of creepy. You couldn't show any penetration, fang or penis. It doesn't matter. <laughs> Bella, please stop. No, no, I, I, I have to talk about this. The reason that censorship is bullshit is because my fangs are clearly not a penis. <laughs> um, I agree. Yes, <laughs> thank you. Moving on now. Uh, no, the big thing, though, with the fangs, in the shooting script and in the early drafts of the script, there's a lot of desire to show close-ups on these fangs emerging from his mouth. Now, obviously, they're not going to have access to the same effects that would allow the teeth to grow, like you'd see in later Dracula performances. But he could have had fangs. I do feel that's a censorship thing. You can't show these fangs. You certainly can't show a close-up of her biting her neck because that goes against code. So I think the the, the, the fang marks were the result of fear of the code. Okay. But the Spanish version... Don't have to worry about that because it's not dealing with American censors. Right. It's a product being exported to Mexico. So 
they get away with that. But what you do see is the Count strolling along the London street, uh, the, long, the foggy London streets. And we're outside of the symphony uh, in a beautiful push-in for both films, a beautiful push-in on the symphony uh, with a car rolling by and then pushing in. The movie does have movement. The Spanish version especially. The English one does. It's just it's few and far between. Right. Now, what we do get is a superior version of Dracula entering the theater boxes where we find Mina Harker, Lucy, John Harker, and Dr. Seward. Um, and he he comes up with the most convoluted scheme to get Dr. Seward's attention by going, you're going to go over to Dr. Seward. You're going to tell him there's a telephone call and then you'll forget, forget everything I told you. And then that's when I make my move and introduce myself to Mr. Seward. <laughs> I, I wonder, I wonder why they did that. I wonder if that was to show off like his hip hypnotism powers. Th- I think because, so. Because I feel like a normal person would have been like Dr. Seward. You know what I mean? Just been like, Allow me to introduce myself. They'd be like, yeah. oh, oh my God, are you the Doctor Seward? Yeah, oh yeah. my God, I'm your new neighbor. Right. Yeah. Oh God, can I borrow a stick of butter from you? I have had no <laughs> chance to go to the store yet since arriving. <laughs> uh, also, a cup of sugar, and also perhaps I don't know if you have this, but a garden hose. <laughs> Need to water my lawn. Very, very dry. Um, the the my previous occupant of Carfax Abbey did not take care of my lawn. <laughs> the lawn is shit. The lawn is shit. A dog would not dare take a poop on it. <laughs> uh, but no, he he uses this convoluted scheme. In the English version, they have Dracula's back to the camera, and you're seeing the woman he's seducing. There's an allusion to in the commentary, which I guess we could talk about. Is this is coming out in Depression era times, and it uh, and Skull pointed out that it seems a lot of the Dracula adaptations deal with the lower class being seduced and easily disposed by the vampire menace. And I have to imagine that this might have struck deeper for people and during the Depression and feasibly could strike just as deep today with the same economic divide. Um, now, it, the logic then kicks itself away when you have him going after Mina Harker, who is... If they're able to afford a theater box, they're clearly not poor. Right. Maybe middle class, I guess, since Seward runs a sanitarium. He's not. He's clearly not a count. Right. He's not Dracula rich. He's sanitarium rich. Um, <laughs> but uh, he introduces himself in a weird, awkward shot that did pose one critic to ponder uh if Lugosi was the shortest villain on screen in screen history because this shot is awkwardly framed where he's talking to Dr. Seward and, Dra- and Bella is clearly shorter than Dr. Seward so it's almost just like this isn't a menacing presence right but his ego is so big that Lugosi can power through any height consideration um his ego or his envelopment in the character was so much that David Manners said he was the only one on the set that took things super seriously to the point where he was walking around looking in a mirror and intoning to himself, I am Dracula. It's one way to do it. You got to imagine getting yourself into character that way. Daniel Day-Lewis doesn't look into the mirror and go, I am Abraham Lincoln. (laughs) (laughs) I am Daniel Plainview. (laughs) Uh, But no, he introduces himself to Lucy and Mina and John. And John and Mina are pretty much white bread homebodies. <laughs> not, yeah. Nothing exciting about them. Lucy though 
is interested in the dark and the macabre. She's the goth girl. She's a goth girl, and Dracula is a goth guy, and they're going to find love? No. Uh, <laughs> but uh, Hot topic? <laughs> Maybe. Spencer's gifts? <laughs> Later Spencer's gifts, not the early one with all the bright colors. <laughs> uh but they, they, Lucy and him and Dracula get into a discussion about how death, uh, there are far things worse than death, contemplating on the macabre, and John and Mina are going like, ew. <laughs> get a room, you creepy too. Right. <laughs> and they cut away to a shot of uh, Mina and Lucy, and Mina here is giving the world's first Bella Lugosi imitation. <laughs> oh, that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Technically, when you consider it, she is giving the first, the first one, Bella Lugosi imitation. And I will tell you, it's not as good as mine. <laughs> <laughs> it's certainly not as good as Martin. Martin was Martin Landau was a genius, <laughs> but but Helen Chandler could not live up to my to my level of perfection. Uh, fun fact: Helen Chandler was not um, as successful an actress after Dracula. She would have multiple bouts with fighting alcoholism uh, and would die from complications of pneumonia later on in the 60s um, after being burned badly burned in a fire yeah. to the point of physical burning and scarring. Just tragic. That's rough. Um, but she and Lucy are talking about like, oh, how creepy is he? And Lucy goes, I think he's fascinating. And Mina goes like, well, that's all well and good, but give me somebody plain like John. <laughs> plain and boring. Plain and boring. I I need stability, Lucy. Nothing exciting whatsoever. I need boredom. I need boredom. And David Manners is the physical personification of absolute fucking boredom. And that's just the kind of man I crave. (laughs) Now, in the Spanish version, Mina is changed to Ava. Yeah. Uh, Lucia Weston instead of Lucy Weston, naturally. And... John Harker is changed to Juan, Juan Harker. Harker. And uh, that's one heck of a name. Now, <laughs> I want you to move on. <laughs> you you thought that was going away just in the screening, didn't you? <laughs> yeah. You're wrong. <laughs> I, will, I will gladly throw a pun my way. Now, um, no, but um, uh, we do get L- Lucy going like, all right, I'm going to go to bed and dream about Dracula. Fuck off. And <laughs> We get these exterior shots of Dracula crossing the, the uh, crossing the way of Lucy's place. Uh, a Bobby is there, and he goes like, "Lovely day out, isn't it, Gov? Or lovely evening out, isn't it, Gov?" And he's just like, Rrr. literally mumbles, <laughs> like, "Yeah, yeah, yeah, whatever. I'm here to stalk somebody." And that's a shot. That shot is Bella used in both films. Yeah, in both right? films, yeah. they're using the outtake version of that for the Spanish version. Yeah, uh, and we have a vampire bat lurking outside on a string. Uh, 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 as here's the thing. I don't think. Yeah, I know. I see it. We got the we got the bat right here. A bat. You want to tell us how it was like being on the set of uh, Dracula? Uh, uh, the bat is saying that it was uh, relatively disorganized. Uh, he said that Todd Browning didn't know a camera from a hole in the ground. Uh, I don't think that's fair. Yeah, bat. I think you're being kind of mean. Well, I don't think that kind of language needs to be coming out of your goddamn mouth, vampire bat. You just keep hanging on that string in this library here. <laughs> um, well, regardless of the bat's commentary on this moment, the bottom line is is that the bat in Dracula, I, I know it gets uh, flack for being cheesy. I like it. I like the bat. I mean, it's it's it was the time for being cheesy, though. Yeah. You know what I mean? And, like, 
there is an element of going big that Dracula does do with the bat. Because obviously they're not going to control an actual vampire bat. That's fucking impossible. But having them do it, at the time, that must have been kind of fun. I don't think it would have been scary. I think it was fun for them. I think so. At this point, they know that that's kind of a cheesy effect. But also, it helps that you have somebody like Lugosi in the role of Dracula because he'll make you believe with that suave debonair attitude and that overall creepy presence that he is transforming himself into a bat or a wolf. Um, Again, it's cheesy, and I think a lot of the reason why I adore it is why I'm defending it. Right. But I understand if people find it a little hokey, but that's kind of the charm. It's like going into a haunted house. It's like going into a haunted house. You know it's fake. Right. But you're still in the mode for it. I, I've got a buddy from high school who, who can't watch black and white movies. He's a liar and a thief. To no, his he, own he heart. can't. He just can't. He just doesn't enjoy them at all. So, like, if he had seen something like that, it would have just been like another mark on the, ugh, you know, like, well, then that's God, you, this is bad. That's when you throw away his stupid marked up notebook <laughs> into a fire. <laughs> but I, I, I get I, it. Not I, everybody I'm, likes it. I'm just movies. saying, like, yes, not not everyone is, is, is going to appreciate it. Yeah. Not everybody, not everybody likes, needs to like these horror films. No. You know, I've talked with people on the show where, you know, their preference starts in the 80s and goes onward. Yeah. Um, I, I I think that, I think ultimately the charm of it uh, overpowers any uh, any goofiness I see in it. Right. Um, and also we get, but we also get him going in for the kill on Lucy. In the book, it takes weeks for Lucy to die. In the novel, in the in the movie, hours. Um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, in the Spanish version, we have her him covering up Lucy with the cape as he goes in for the bite. Yeah. yeah. In the uh, American version, we see uh just going in for the bike and then a bite and then it cuts off. Um, Doctor Seward has tried to no avail to uh, have a transfusion work for Lucy to get her more blood. Uh, and in the Spanish version, we see the marks on Lucy's neck. So clearly we are dealing with something that can't be solved by regular man. So we have to go all the way to Stockholm, Sweden, to enter Edward Van Sloan as Dr. Van Helsing. Uh, Edward Van Sloan had played this role on Broadway prior with with Bella Lugosi. I didn't know that. Yeah, and this was the longest theatrical engagement he had ever had in his life prior to Dracula. He would only go for a couple weeks on a production because they would never last. This would last up with touring and traditional New York dates for 22 weeks, which is a shit ton of time for a season. Um, and so he came in, he did a screen test. He pretty much knew what to do going on in. And I will say Edward Van Sloan is like the... I think he's an unsung hero in the film in the respect of like performance wise. He is giving you your traditional man who knows monsters vibe in a way that I think we've seen disappear lately, but in the seventies and eighties, this was prevalent in horror movies. Still. I think the best version of that is Dr. Sam Loomis. I think, um, I think his, the way he moves in the movie and the way Bell Lugosi moves in the movie in the movie. They're the two most confident characters. Yeah. And you made up you pointed out something when we were watching this that I didn't realize. He never really breaks his concentration or his intended goal of catching the vampire. Like his facial expression never really moves into anything startled or aghast. He knows this is what's gonna happen. Whereas the Spanish versions, uh, Van Helsing is a little bit more taken aback. 
Eugene Levy. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Spanish Eugene Levy. Uh, <laughs> he, uh, uh, the actor playing uh, uh, Van Helsing in the Spanish version, he is a little bit more taken aback, as if though he is not even sure of his own conviction that this is a vampire. Yeah. And in fact, he overtly explains it later on about like, well, I happened to notice that Dracula wasn't in the mirror. But in the in the English version, Van Helsing is fairly confident. We are dealing with the undead. Yeah, it's it's almost like he's not afraid of Dracula either. He's not afraid of Dracula. Yeah. No, he's he ain't afraid of no vampire. <laughs> <laughs> if there's some if there's something strange in your Transylvanian hood, who are you gonna call? And I feel like that's right. Who are you gonna call? Van, Van Helsing. Helsing. Dun, 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 dun. Um. We also talked about Anthony Hopkins' role as Van Helsing in yes, Coppola's Dracula and how he was the same way, but he was a little more unhinged as a character. Yeah, he's a little bit more... He's excited to be a vampire. Yeah, he is. Whereas in, the, uh, whereas in this version, he's like, well, we just have to do this for the sake of humanity. Right, right. <laughs> There's no like, oh boy, I'm going to catch myself a vampire. <laughs> oh, goody, 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 goody. Um, now... Next, we get Van Helsing arriving to England pretty quickly. <laughs> yeah, like like in an hour. Yeah, like in an, like like uh, I'll be there in fifteen minutes, <laughs> gentlemen. We are dealing with the undead. I must fly, as it were. <laughs> Got to bounce. <laughs> Peace out, dudes. <laughs> And uh, he arrives there pretty quickly. But as you pointed out to me earlier on today, when you know you got to fight a vampire, you get there pretty fucking quick. You get there quick. Like, just just like Dr. Sam Loomis is able to get to Haddonfield pretty damn quickly uh, behind Michael Myers in the first Halloween. That's right. He does. I don't know if it's because Michael Myers was taking his time or if Dr. Sam Loomis was just like, no, I've just got to speed through. <laughs> uh, but Sheriff, I, I broke all the laws of speed and time to bring you this warning that evil is here um here though we get uh two the both scenes in the spanish and the english version have the first real confrontation with renfield now both have the same exterior of seward sanitarium which i pointed out in my notes looks way too much way, way too cheery for a sanitarium of the era that's right <laughs> as we know sanitariums of this era to be uh, filled with patient abuse and no understanding of mental illness whatsoever. This place looks far too clean by comparison. Coppola's version is pretty damn grimy and dirty. That's right. Yeah. Very damn grimy and dirty. And it has Tom Waits wriggling around in there as Renfield, which already kind of adds some form of dirt. To that's right. <laughs> a, that's not a crack against Tom Waits. It just looks like sometimes he hasn't taken a bath in years. That's right. <laughs> You don't need it when you've got a fish trombone. Uh, but we do see that Renfield is not being treated very well at this asylum, Willicks. After all, his spiders are being thrown out the window by the most cockney That's asylum right. attendant in history. That's right. Um, what, aren't you ashamed of yourself? He also, Renfield seems to have the run of the place. Yeah, he does. Let's talk about this. Explain to the audience, Mr. Matt Willicks, why Renfield has the run of the place in here. Because they don't close the door to They the don't cell. close that goddamn door. <laughs> oh, Renfield got out again. <laughs> Just close the door. What? You mean, Governor, I can, I can lock the door? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you mean I don't have to leave it cracked open because he says he's afraid of the dark? <laughs> <laughs> you mean he didn't need a nightlight this entire time? <laughs> Oh my goodness! The, the, this is just 
the it's it's kind of crazy because like in the Spanish version and in the English version, he's just hopping around all over. He's the place. just all over the place. Now you pointed out though, in because it's been a while since I've watched Coppola's version, but Renfield is pretty much stuck to his cell. Yeah, in, he's in, he's in the sanitarium. Yeah, in his cell the whole time. I theorize, and I'm assuming I'm going to assume that I'm correct. This is a convenience contrived by the stage play to get scenes with Renfield. In order to do that, you have to kind of make him be able to move in and around the sanitarium to go into the drawing yeah. room or the sewered facility. Because they keep they keep in this one set for like a huge yeah chunk. Yeah, the the first scene that we're talking about here is in the office where he uh, talks. He he gets interrogated by Van Helsing to the point where Van Helsing goes like, "I know how to stop this, Wolfsbane," and we get Wolfsbane being thrown at him and. Renfield in both versions has the wonderful line, you know far too much to live, Van Helsing. That's a good line. I love that fucking line. <laughs> oh, my God. It's it's one of those reasons why even if Stephen Summers' Van Helsing movie isn't great, the austerity of a Van Helsing character is so powerful that you will, at least for me, I can find myself sunk into a movie like Van Helsing. Yeah. Because that aura of the character is so strong. And I do find myself adoring the monster hunters as much as I do the monsters themselves because you have to be a little bit off your rocker to be a monster hunter. I think so, yeah. I mean, as I've said before countless times, Dr. Loomis reaches the point of shaking Daniel Harris uncontrollably in Halloween 5 going, tell me where he is, Jamie! (laughs) And uh, we get that scene and then we get further into the drawing room in between all of this, we see Dracula slowly seducing Mina, um, encroaching in and biting her one night in her sleep to start the transformation. So he, Lucy takes only a few hours. Mina clearly takes at least a couple of days. The The time frame is kind of unclear in both versions. It's it's very much early cinema time logic. Right, yeah. Things happen at an expeditious rate. They happen when they need to happen. Exactly. It's movie magic, goddammit. You don't have to know about, well, how did they get from one planet to the other in Star Wars super quick? They just did. It's a movie about a farmer in space (laughs) who becomes a wizard. (laughs) Get over it. Anyway, (laughs) um, uh, you'll never hear a Star Wars ballyhoo ever because you will just hear me rant (laughs) for five hours about how fandom sucks. Um, but can we, suck. Yeah, it can suck. You're one of the positive fans. I love you. Thank you. Uh, but, but no, um, we also get the big drawing room sequence within this time frame with Dracula coming into the conversation. And uh, a sh- this, this is after Mina is actually talking about what she experienced the night before. And then Count Dracula appears when his name is mentioned, which is I love that kind of dramatic convenience where it's like, who did this to you? Count Dracula. <laughs> They don't say Count Dracula. The person announcing him does. It's kind of like Beetlejuice. Yeah, exactly. Don't don't say Dracula's name five more times or he comes through the mirror and <laughs> becomes right. Tony Todd. That's right. <laughs> Be my victim. <laughs> Sweets to the sweet. <laughs> <laughs> Bella Lugosi as Candyman. <laughs> it wouldn't work for what Bernard Rose wanted to do. It was always you. <laughs> Helen Chandler, it was always you. Now become the new Candyman. <laughs> you haven't seen the new Candyman yet, have you? Not yet. Okay, no. I won't spoil it. I had a joke, but I'm not going to do it now. Oh, okay, thank you. <laughs> um, but uh, anyway, we uh, 
we get the conversation with Dracula going, oh, don't worry. All those stories I told you were Transylvania hocus pocus. Doesn't matter. You're going to be fine, Ms. Mina Harker. Wink. And uh, meanwhile, Dr. Uh, Van Helsing is just like, I do not trust him. And we slowly realize that he has every right to not trust him because he looks in the mirror inside a cigarette box and sees that Dr. Seward and Mina are talking to thin air. Because That's right. Vampires do not cast a reflection. That's right. And so uh, Mina retires for the evening. Also, I remember the Spanish language version of that, of the mirror scene yes, is much the, better. Yeah, oh, thank you for reminding me. So the choreography of looking in the mirror and seeing they're talking to nothing is better blocked in Spanish Dracula to the point where Lupita Tovar's hand raises in such the right manner. And that it matches Dracula's taking it and kissing her hand. Yeah, it's it's almost as if the Lupita Tovar is really good at mimicking the weight of Carlos Villarias's hand. Yeah, and the grip of what the grip will be. Yeah, because when they cut to the reverse shot, where you see Dracula, it's virtually in the same position, like yeah, mm-hmm. almost too perfectly. Yeah, it looks great. Yeah, it's one thing if they were to do that in the English language version and the hand's slightly off, but this one is like super matched oh yeah like i was shocked uh and then we get uh dracula is gonna leave for the evening and then van helsing goes like oh no, no before you go help me confirm something um he says the line a moment ago i discovered the most amazing phenomenon a sight that which uh, a sight of which i mistrust my own judgment look and he holds up the mirror and Dracula looks in the mirror and Bela Lugosi swats it away with his hand and goes back. Yeah. Inarguably a much more powerful uh, movement emotionally and dramatically. Villarias smashes the cigarette box with his fucking cane right. in a <laughs> melodramatic fashion. Yeah. I have the I have the argument that this is one of the reasons why Lugosi is the missing link ultimately for Spanish Dracula is like yeah. that's a move that 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 Bella Lugosi does better because he's doing something human. Right. Yeah. He's mm-hmm. he's an inhuman monster doing something very human. Villarias is a monster smashing something. That's the difference between the two. Right. And it's also how Dracula can seduce people really easily with goth talk. And <laughs> <laughs> my chemical romance, good Charlotte. <laughs> All of the classics. Fallout Boy. <laughs> I even like Alkaline Trio. <laughs> uh, I, I, I like Rob Zombie, but I think he's a little too obvious. <laughs> <laughs> which I think is kind it's of the, too on the nose too on the nose however I really enjoy the Dracula song because it's kind of my jam you know <laughs> I would ride in a Dracula if I was Herman Monster it I was would. my it's about me it's about me if I were a car <laughs> <laughs> Rob Z- the monsters and Rob Zombie said what if Dracula was a car <laughs> <laughs> what if me as an aged grandpa uh, was driving the Dracula? Uh, and because uh, because I believe grandpa Ma- grandpa's car is the Dracula. It's not Herman's, if I recall. Grandpa correctly. Monster. Yeah, I believe yeah. it's Grandpa's car. Yeah, I think so. Uh, I, 
it, 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 it could be Harmon's too. I, can't I always feel like it was Grandpa's car for some reason. We'll find out because Rob Zombie's doing the, his uh, version of the That's monsters. That's right. right I'm, now. I'm remaking the monsters because they wouldn't let me do raised eyebrows because the financial people don't fucking understand that I'm not just a one trick pony. <laughs> right. <laughs> and I agree with him. He's not just a one-trick pony. He can do it. I would love to see his version of Raised Eyebrows. Uh, the, the Groucho Marx um, Final, oh, final oh, yeah, Years yeah, movie. Yeah. yeah, he would have done a great job of it. Anyway, rant over. Dracula leaves, and he does And he does say before he leaves another immortal line, for one who has, only lived, uh, has not even lived an entire lifetime, you are a very wise man, Professor Van Helsing. Yeah, it's a good line. Oh, the shivers. Everybody's good at talking about Van Helsing. Van Helsing's not good at boosting himself up. Right. He's almost just like, no, I just do this to help. He, he doesn't need to boost himself up. He already knows what a kind of a badass he is. Yeah. I am a monster hunter. <laughs> and uh, we get further scenes outside where it's revealed that Lucy is roaming the uh, the, 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 the the parks at night attacking children. Yes. Feasting on children. Yeah. And our and our lovely caretaker points out like mysterious woman in white <laughs> attacking children in the park. And then one of the attendants goes ghosts and he goes, No, vampires. What are you, silly? <laughs> <laughs> he sounds like a horror nerd. <laughs> yeah. I wanted to get the name of this orderly Charles K. Gerard as Martin. <laughs> Uh, Charles K. Gerard, uh, he was the brother of actor and film director Douglas Gerard. Um, he has a varied career that includes such roles in movies as Blackbirds from 1920, uh, Off the Highway in 1925. One of his last um, uh, films was uh, was a political party in the role of Mr. Whitman. Dracula is one of his final roles. Um, he would end up dying. Uh, in 1969. So it sounds like he retired at a certain point yeah. or, or became obsolete. I don't know. Maybe he was just too cockney for everybody's own good. Right. I don't I don't know. <laughs> I don't... Ruby size of tangerines. Now, uh, uh, but no, he's telling this story. Meanwhile, Renfield keeps escaping. Yeah. And we get yeah. further evidence that Mina is slowly getting drained of her life. Um, we get Renfield coming in and basically... Seward and Van Helsing are confirming the fact, okay, we're dealing with a vampire. And Renfield comes in at certain points and goes, you better listen to Van Helsing. He's your only salvation. And they try to get Renfield to confess. And Renfield as a character, I guess it's good to talk about this, is that he is conflicted as a character. He doesn't want to see Miss Mina harmed. He says multiple times, like, send me away or make sure that Lucy or make sure that Mina can't be touched because he does have an established relationship prior in the novel with the Sewards. Yeah, I think Dwight Fry. If it's a shame that he didn't live as long as he could have when he died on a city bus in the 40s, he was working as a at a plant for wool in a, a mechanics plant in World War Two. He was working for the armed services in World War II uh, as a civilian and, uh, and, you know, building the tanks and weapons and whatnot. And he was scheduled for a comeback in his career. He was scheduled for a comeback until he died on that bus. It's clear that this role pigeonholed him for the remainder of his career. Right. He yeah. was He was a scattered but successful stage actor prior to this. After this, his next roles end up being, amongst other things, Fritz in uh, Frankenstein. Uh, 
and uh, the grave robber in Bride of the grave robber slash murderer in Bride of Frankenstein. Um, it's a shame. He's a very dynamic performer. Yeah, and he arguably gives one of his greatest speeches in this moment here, where they're back in the drawing room, and he's talking about why he would do what Dracula tells him to do, and he gives the impression of an image that would have been too expensive to film. Yeah. But out of the red mist, Dracula appears and thousands of red piercing eyes uh, appear and it's revealed that they are rats. 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 Thousands. Millions of them. All red blood. All these will I give you. If you will obey me. Which is another extension out of the Bible, a quote from the Bible from Math from the book of Matthew, uh, alluding to the moment where Jesus was tempted by Satan in the forest, going like, All things I will give the I, I these things I will give you if you bow down and worship me. Um, I believe is the, uh, please don't come after me, church people. Um, I, I respect the Bible as a storytelling tool and nothing else. Um, but, uh, <laughs> uh, but that's another inversion of yeah. the Bible towards nefarious purposes, arguably and more in line with its direct allusion in the Bible. Right. Because you're talking about like Dracula, Satan and whatnot. Um, and you also get moments of him realizing that Dracula is outside, whether in bat form or in human form. And he sees him only and he goes like, no, master, I wasn't going to send you out to the coppers, I swear. Right. Yeah. <laughs> And they actually hear a large scream, and it's from a maid going like, it's it's Miss Mina. She's dead on the grounds. And they all go out to investigate. Meanwhile, Renfield does his classic catchphrase. <laughs> and it scares this maid to be to fainting on the ground. That's right. And we get him crawling toward her on the oh, ground. Yeah. The American version ends up being more sinister because it cuts away. Yeah, that's before right. you can see anything in the Spanish version, he reaches out and tries to catch a fly that doesn't that escapes his grasp, and then he looks up to the sky and laughs. Arguably, Todd Browning has some more violent intonations in his film than previously indicated. Right, um, and then we are really thrust into the climax of this film. Um, but before we do, there is a there's a scene that's supposed to happen amidst the climax that is very important in the book. It's one of the most brutal scenes in the book, which is the destruction of Mina or of the destruction of Lucy as the, the Lucy vampire. If you've watched Bram Stoker's Dracula and to a more, uh, to a more uh, exaggerated extent, Dracula dead and loving it by Mel Brooks, the wonderful Mel Brooks, uh, you see them destroying the Lucy vampire by staking her through the heart and blood spurts out at them. Yeah. Uh, obviously in Dracula dead or loving it, he keeps stabbing her and more blood comes out and Mel Brooks keeps, <laughs> as Van Helsing keeps telling him, do it again! <laughs> <laughs> Which is why Dracula dead and loving it is awesome. Uh, uh, but in the, uh, in the script... For both versions, it is alluded to that it would have intercut between Mina being f taken away by Dracula, that they would be uh, going to the grave of, of Lucy and Dr. Van Helsing being like, I hoped to spare you this, but you, but now you must do it. And, he, and they would cut away, obviously, because they're not going to show them staking Lucy. And then they would cut back to the outside of the 
uh, of the of the crypt and basically intonating, okay, the deed is done. You would hear a horrific scream, according to the script, uh, indicating that Lucy has perished. Um, in the Spanish version, we get the aftermath of them going after Lucy because we get dialogue prior establishing that they're going to go after Lucy. Um, prior to all this, though, we get this... I wanted to address that up front so that we could streamline because the way both versions play out, we get alternate versions of two of the key scenes in this movie. First is arguably the ultimate confrontation between Dracula and Van Helsing, where Dracula enters the uh, enters Dr. Seward's hall and goes, now that you have learned what we have learned, it would be w w wise for you to return to your own country. And Dr. Van Helsing goes, I choose to remain to help assist those who might be struck down by you. And they have a little, you know, battle of the wits there. Yeah. It's, it's like, it's like Xavier and Magneto before Xavier. Right. And Magneto. <laughs> Except not because Magneto is a, is a anti-hero slash villain. Like he's kind of multi-purpose and Dracula is just evil. Um, in the Spanish version, this was intercut as we noticed with the scene where Mina is seducing Jonathan Harker. Yeah. In the American version, it's two separate scenes. Yeah. I think the Spanish version does this better because it provides contrast. Um, I just wish we had Bella Lugosi and Edward Van Sloan in that version because the performance of the Van Helsing character in the Spanish version is one I'm not a fan of because of how reactive he is. Yeah, he gets real afraid. He gets really afraid, and I feel like Van Helsing is past that. It's been a long time since I've even tried to read the book. I don't know how Van Helsing is supposed to play off according to Stoker by inherent knowledge. I just know what I feel from my experience with Van Helsing characters that I want Van Helsing to be confident. Yeah. But again, it doesn't sometimes matter what I want. You can do any interpretation of Van Helsing you want. You can make him excited like Anthony Hopkins or ripped like Hugh Jackman. It doesn't matter. And, uh, but regardless, we are seeing that Mina is slowly descending into vampire lore where she's just like, no, you know what you should do, John? You should have them take out that wolf's bane out of my out of my pillow. And you know what? Get rid of that cross, too. I I've decided to become atheist. You know, <laughs> <laughs> uh, and we have her slowly seducing him outside. <laughs> Van Helsing and Seward come in through Mina's room to discover this. And the second of two grievous, grievous uh, errors are taking place uh, visually here. Oh, yeah. We are, we've got to talk about the cardboard. <laughs> <laughs> so in a prior shot where Dracula is entering Mina's room, there is a piece of cardboard in the medium shot. There's a piece of cardboard attached to a practical lamp to block out the light that was clearly intended to create a different contrast for the close-up shot. Carl Freund and Todd Browning never bothered to take the cardboard off of this practical lamp. Yeah. It's very clear that this happened concurrently within the same days of each other because, one, it's not in the Spanish version. But number two, that same piece of cardboard is in the same shot when Van Helsing and Seward are coming in through Mina's room. Yeah. I have a theory that if Carl Freund is primarily the director of this piece, he is too tired to give a shit about what's in the frame. Yeah. As long as it's lit okay, he's good with it. He's not noticing right away. Or Todd Browning is so disinterested that he's not noticing and Carl Freund's just getting paid. Right. I have to believe that this is a matter of being tired and not disinterest. Yeah, because that happens. Yeah, and if you're and if you're filming at the rate that you're trying to fill, film within the budget that you have, 
shit's gonna happen. Makes sense. Shit's gonna yeah. happen, you know? Um, and so we do get the revelation, like, okay, Mina, Mina's aware that she can't love Jonathan Harker. She needs to... Jonathan needs to go far away from her. She reveals that Dracula had opened up a vein in his arm and made her drink from it to complete this transformation that she's going under. Imagine if they had even tried <laughs> to get that image on screen. Would have been crazy, right? Yeah. Would have been absolutely out of its fucking mind. Um, now, this is where we start getting to the climax of everything, where Mina is taken away to Dra- Castle Dracula, to Carfax Abbey. To Carfax Abbey. <laughs> Sorry, to Carfax Abbey, not to Castle Dracula in this film. Um, in the Spanish version, we get exteriors of Carfax Abbey. Yeah. In the English version, we don't. Right. The only exterior we really get is the outside of a slight window covered amongst the hill where you can see inside the castle's stairway. Right. And Renfield has followed... Dracula to the castle after escaping from the prison. Yeah, again, it's almost as if I should lock the fucking door. <laughs> What's my job again? Oh, oh, that's right. I'm supposed to take care of the patients here <laughs> and make sure they don't escape. Uh, hey, am I the baddie? <laughs> I've got legs. <laughs> I've got legs. You know what? I, I could. I have arms. I could have shut the door, <laughs> but I didn't. I did not. Did I not? <laughs> um, and. Uh, and we get Renfield coming up the stairs going, Master, Master. Renf- and Dracula looks down going like, You fucking idiot. <laughs> <laughs> Clearly you can escape so many times from your bedroom, you couldn't escape the sanitarium itself. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, the uh, we get him, real uh, J- Dracula hears noise. It's revealed that Jonathan and... Dr. Van Helsing have come upon Carfax Abbey by clearly following Renfield. And Renfield's like, no, I didn't lead them here, master. In the Spanish version, Dracula, Villarias is carrying Mina or Ava. In the American version, Dracula is, uh, is leading her down the hall and she's walking. Yeah. And I told you that this is the only awkward part of the Spanish version that I could find is that in order for him to get down to Renfield in the castle stairs to then chuck him down, which is more brutal in the Spanish version. Yeah. There is the move that he has to turn around and put Ava down on the ground and then turn <laughs> yeah. and go down. Like it's, it's like almost too much mechanics. Yeah. It would have been easier if you just cut away. I w- my brain would have probably filled it in. Mm-hmm. In the American version, he could just walk right past uh, Mina and toss him. But in the Spanish version, we see him actually throw him off the stairs. We see him choke Renfield yeah. and then throw him off yeah. and the you high he- part of the stairs. And you hear it a loud thump. Yeah. In the American version, you see Renfield tumbling. Renfield down the tumbles down the stairs, yeah. and then when he's almost to the bottom of the stairs, he falls off him. Yeah, and then he falls behind some some debris. Yeah, and um, and the uh, there is an allusion to the fact like it's more prevalent in the Spanish version is that Van Helsing promises to Renfield that he will save him. Yeah, which I think is important because the American version kind of give, give two shits about Renfield, right? In the Spanish version, there is this element of redemption and plays more on the idea of if an evil man seduced you into these wares, could you be saved biblically? Right. And, you know, we're not biblical scholars. We're not going to get to the bottom of that fucking fucking idea. But it is intriguing to see that this early on, the Universal Horror Movies, 
in either iteration, because the American version does cover it, tackling a tough question. Yeah. And one that is just sly enough to not piss off a religious group. Right. Because it is asking a theological question. And the fact that it does present in the film means that there's still dramatic heft to any version of this movie. Um, And we get, of course, the confrontation. After Renfield dies, he takes Mina down to the catacombs of Carfax Abbey, which look incredible. Yeah, it looks great. They look gorgeous AF, as the children say. Um, Gorgeous AF. It is lit. It is the shit. (laughs) (laughs) That shit is dope. (laughs) Phantom's like a mall fucker. (laughs) (laughs) Little nod to Kevin Smith, because we needed to do that today. (laughs) Um, But in the Spanish version, there's like a shot of them getting at the door and trying to bang it down with a tool. In the American version, they're just banging real hard on the door. Like pushing at it, going, come on, (laughs) we can't get in. Uh, and uh, but in the Spanish version, they're actually trying to break down the door. Yeah. Um, in the American version, we don't really see much of Dracula being affected by the sunlight. It's very sparse. In the Spanish version, there's a full-on scene where we see the sun fully affecting. Yeah, and he panics a little he, bit. He panics and he leaves me and he goes bye and gets into his coffin to keep himself safe. Meanwhile, Mina's got to find cover elsewhere. Jonathan and Van Helsing go into the catacombs. They discover Dracula in his crypt. And in the American version, Van Helsing says, find me something hard like a rock or anything to drive the stake through his heart. And then he goes at the top of the uh, lid of the coffin and starts banging it up. Yeah. Basically, it pro- up, splinters it. Basically proclaiming, I hate wood. <laughs> and grabs a very profound stake to stab through the heart of Dracula. They look in the other coffin to see if Mina's there, but Mina's not there. Oh, no. Where could she be? <laughs> not in the coffin. No, she's not. She's hiding from the sunlight. And um, in the Spanish version, he doesn't break the top of the lid coffin. He finds a, he piece, finds of wood, a piece of wood. <laughs> finds it conveniently on the ground. But they use the same tool. They use the same tool. To drive the stake. Therefore, uh, it's safe to say that that's the same piece of wood that Van Helsing uses yes. in the American version. So they just found it conveniently. Yes. They're tired. They're shooting overnight. They want to get home. They just want to go. They, everybody just wants to go home. <laughs> Nobody wants to make a monster movie, Willix. Only we do with 70 years of hindsight. That's right. <laughs> and they drive the stake through Dracula's heart in in the time that this was released, Dracula's death rattle was omitted in later years. Yes. This this death rattle of Lugosi going, ah, was then re-added 60 years later to the Laserdisc release because the argument was that it was too gruesome. And I have here a review by one of the people who directed the, who did the stage, who was reviewing the stage version of Dracula. This is from Brooke Atkinson of the New York Times. He says, they kill him with one blow on a stake driven through his heart. 
Several additional blows given with a hearty grunt or two would seem to be a good deal more conclusive. Dracula deserves a steam hammer. So even back in the day, people were complaining about the way somebody dies on screen or on stage. Toxic fandom isn't a new phenomenon. It's always been with us. They just didn't have a Comic-Con to attend. (laughs) Or or people just want to complain about something. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. 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 Anyway, Count Dracula died, and Mina's life is saved. She immediately feels better. Yes, Dracula is dead. Mina hearts. Mina is alive, and in the Spanish version, she and Juan walk off yep. and go, "Aren't you coming to Doctor Van Helsing?" And Van Helsing goes, "No, I'm going to keep my promise to Renfield." In the American version, they just fuck off and go up the stairs. Yeah. In the Spanish version, they go up the stairs, and you see a wide shot of Van Helsing looking down at the dead Renfield. And the very form-fitting nightgown. Yes, in a very form-fitting nightgown. So that's the thing. We haven't really talked about it, but Lupita Tovar is allowed more daring decollage uh, and more very- Ooh, that's a good word. That decollage. Uh, yeah, that's that's something they kept saying in there. I'm going to call it lingerie because <laughs> I'm a simpleton. <laughs> uh, she is allowed more revealing clothing. Uh, decotage uh, is the word, I think. Uh, but anyway, lingerie is allowed to be more scandalous- she shows more cleavage, basically. More cleavage, yeah. Yeah. Uh, there is a point actually where it's see through. Uh, not that oh, we, yeah. not that we were clearly observing it, waiting for it. I was. It, <laughs> <laughs> you know that that does explain a text <laughs> that you sent to me, going like, "Zach, is there boobs in this movie?" <laughs> so I, I, there's a. A person I know from high school, I'm no longer friends with. I'm not going to name them. But, no, that's fine. But um, when I hung out with them, I'd be like, hey, let's watch this movie. And his question was, are there boobs in it? Really? Yeah. And I'd be like, what? It, what? What? You know, like, why is that? It's Predator. You know? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I mean. Technically, yes, there are boobs in that. There's yeah, lots of man boobs. Yeah, there that. is. Yeah, Arnold Schwarzenegger's boobs, Carl yeah. Weathers' boobs. Yeah, exactly. Technically, the Predator shows his boobs. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so whenever, yeah. No, no, let's go back to thinking about Predator boobs. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, but anyway, no, it's the end. It's a universal picture, in case you didn't realize it. It's a big reminder. Big reminder. It's a universal. Hey, this is a, this is something that carries on into Universal's legacy years down the line because at the end of every Universal movie, for a long time, especially you'd see that old ad: "Visit Universal Studios Orlando or Universal Studios uh, Hollywood." Yeah, yeah, with um, the globe. Yeah, or like uh, at the end of every Nickelodeon program where you say, "Visit Nickelodeon Studios in yeah. Universal Studios Florida," or like at the end of. Um Animal House or Blues Brothers, they have the visit Universal Studios. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. This is something that's always carried on. But at the time, there's no Universal theme park. There is a Universal City complete with its own fire department, which if you're forming your own city, shouldn't you be focusing on the output of your product and not managing an entire city? No, I want a city. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm sorry, Carl Sr. My bad. I didn't mean to I didn't mean to step on your fucking toes. You run this place. It's your call. That's right. If you want to make your son the president of the company at the age of 21, that's totally fine. And I will. I mean, reasonable. Reasonable. Please don't. Please don't fire me. <laughs> Where's my city? <laughs> instead of I own this city it's where's my city <laughs> actually he could say that at a certain point up until giving up universally go yeah I own this town <laughs> um so yes we end a universal picture this film made for a budget of 314 
$1,000 with the Spanish version running at $66,000 had its world premiere at the Roxy Theater in New York City on February 12th, 1931. Uh, two days before Valentine's Day. Ooh. That's kind of interesting. Yeah. it's Now, there's there's discrepancy as to whether or not there was a planned Valentine's Day oh. release. And it seems like David J. Skulls kind of nixed that idea. Oh, okay. There was, a, well, if anything- no. If it, I am the Dracula expert. He is the Dracula expert. You saw expert. me in that black coat that I sent you a picture of, Willis. Yes. <laughs> you d- he does look suave in that black he coat. He does. He wears, a, he wears a mustache really damn good. He does. Say. Better than me. No, well, now, but you guys have different types of mustache goals. He's... <laughs> That's true. Your must- well, that's true because I don't really have a goal. It's just hair on the face. <laughs> mustache anarchy. It covers up the rolls. Hey, you know what? Yeah. At least you guys can agree yours is much more dashing than Michael Visseroff's mustache, which is a little bit too corny and on the nose. Yes. Too curly. I know? agree. Yeah. No, but uh, if anything, it looks like they were even trying to release this on Friday the 13th. Really? Which would have been interesting. That's kind of crazy. I'm not going to lie. That'd be fucking cool. That'd be cool. That'd be fucking dope. Even even that little bit of information is cool. Yeah. I, I think it's pretty badass. Now, this film did have trouble with the censors prior, obviously, it was rejected by the censors in Singapore, British Malaya, and in British Columbia, where officials had requested extensive cuts, including elimination of the vampire women at Dracula's castle, Renfield's dialogue about spiders, flies, and uh, spiders, flies, and rats' blood, the crying of a child of a child in the cemetery, and the reading aloud of newspaper accounts of the child's off-screen victimization. So like the whole, you know, when when Martin becomes right. a horror nerd. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh the uh uh the big thing on the production code here on this part. The numerous complaints on Dracula for the Motion Picture Producers and Distributors Association uh said uh there was a th- this is the big complaint. I cannot see one redeeming feature in this picture. It is the most horrible thing. Uh according to one appraisal Another one says the author must have had a distorted mind and I cannot understand why it was produced. I cannot speak too strongly against this picture for children. Uh, Another denounced the film as unwholesome and ghastly, morbid, inhuman and pointless. Basically all the selling points to get you inside this movie. Yeah. Uh, in this day of high-pressure living, strained nerves, and constant excitement, it seems too bad that such pictures with strong influences on the emotions should be allowed any showing of any kind. Still another saw an immediate social danger on Dracula. According to the monster show by David J. Skull, all these reports are coming in. This one says, The picture should be protested by every previewing organization. It's insane horrible details shown to millions of impressionable children, to adults bowed down by human misery, and will do an infinite amount of harm. Marjorie Ross Davis... PTA report chairman told the MPPDA that she knew the theme of the picture and saw the first 15 minutes of it and felt I could stand no more. It should be withdrawn from the public showing as children, the weak-minded, and all classes attend motion pictures indiscriminately. Uh, and <laughs> I, 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 I wonder, was, did anyone protest Psycho? Uh, I can't the remember. Critics thought it was trashy, right? But did anyone did anyone say 
this is going to corrupt our youth. I don't think so. I, that's surprising to me. Yeah, though, well, I will tell you that it's Brit- British Alternative Peeping Tom by Michael Powell. Have you seen that one? I haven't. I've, I've read about it. Yeah, that one caused huge protests in the UK. Yeah. I think Hitchcock got away with it. But, but, but I think it's because he was high profile. And... That and also... All the censor battles he had, he won because the censors kind of inexplicably gave up. Right. Like, they ordered him to reshoot the bedroom scene and said, all right, you come over here and supervise it for the day. They got onto set. They paid everybody for the day. They got Janet Lee back into her bra. They got John Gavin shirtless on the bed. Sherlock office representative didn't show up, and Hitchcock said... I fucking knew it. That's a wrap, everybody. Yeah, you all get paid for the day. Yeah, this was harsh shit. I just, I, we needed to prove a fucking point. So I think Hitchcock did get away with it because of the high profile. And also, quite frankly, audience expectation had already evolved a little bit at this point to where you could accept that. Yeah. So I think they did get away with it by retrospect. It's more that the critics just found it trashy for Hitchcock to do. And also Hitchcock had already pushed boundaries anyway. Right. This is, though, early on. and this No, is, I understand. I'm just... Oh, yeah. Thought popped in my head. Oh, yeah, no. Uh, I was going to say, though, like, the British... Speaking of the British censors for Michael Powell, this is, like, the, the start of the beginning of, like, eventually Britain cracks down on these with the rated H. Right. And we start seeing the beginnings of many British censorship issues um, to the point where it all climaxes in the video nasty. Which is surprising to me. It is. I... Th- I, I Elaborate. Like, why, why would you no, think? I, I, just, have my, I have my They're theory. not as uptight as we are. They aren't when it comes to humor and sex, but violence they do abhor. Oh, okay. Well, I guess that makes sense. They have a dark sense of humor, and they'll have a liberty towards we, sex. We have, a, we have a more violent history, so yeah. I, I, we're, I guess we're kind of flipped on that. Yeah, but, our, but we still had the common ground in the mid-30s of really trying to push away from horror films. But our reasoning came from an overall sweep with the Hayes Code fully being enforced. The production code gets fully enforced by 1933. Pre-code films are are no longer a outstanding issue by 1935. Okay. So, like, by the, by the mid-30s, pre-code films have been sur- supplanted by the actual enforcement of the code. Okay. Prior to that, the code was kind of seen as a joke by the studios. Yeah. Until... Uh, morality groups really stepped up their game. Okay. Um, now, Dracula as a film, the critics for uh, critics received this film pretty positively. Um, Mordaunt Hall of the New York Times called it the best of many mystery films. He said Browning's direction was imaginative, <laughs> and Helen Chander's performance as excellent. Um, I mean, Mordaunt, I'm glad he liked the movie, but I don't think he watched the right movie. <laughs> right. Did he get another cut of the movie that we didn't get? Right. Oh, my God, that'd be dope. Uh, Variety praised the film for its remarkable, effective background of creepy atmosphere and wrote, it is difficult to think of anybody who could quite match the performance of the vampire parts as Bela Lugosi, even to the faint flavor of foreign speech that fits so neatly. Uh, film Daily said that it was a fine melodrama and that what? Lugosi was one of the most unique and powerful roles on screen. Now, you said that. Here's the thing. They didn't have a really classification for a horror picture. Phantom of the Opera was considered a melodramatic tragic romance. Hunchback of Notre Dame is a period piece. Yeah. Jacques has a war drama, but we use Jacques as an example of what the earliest zombies look like, let alone the earliest examples of what the disfigurement of war does to man that leads to the imagery of these monsters that help us 
deal with our problems in the yeah. present. Um, and Caligari was considered kind of like a supernatural avant-garde art piece. Yeah. Nosferatu is probably the only one that actively says it's a horror movie because it has in the title a symphony of horror. Oh, that's true. Um, but even then, it could be considered supernatural. I think this is the first film where everything clicks into the horror genre, a horror picture or scary picture. Yeah. Um, the film, uh, within 48 hours of opening at the Roxy Theater, it sold 50,000 tickets. And that momentum builds to a $700,000 profit for Universal. Tie this into Frankenstein. This is the most profitable year they will ever have in the Depression. Oh, okay. Now, $700,000 in 1931 is not nothing at all. Right. That is a lot of fucking money. Right. And the film ends up having long-standing success because it ga- it, it convinces Carl Lemley Jr., okay, these are this is a genre that works for us. Let's tackle another one. Say, here's this book, Frankenstein. Now, Todd Browning, Dwight Fry, and Bella Lugosi all have negative uh, histories following Dracula. Todd Browning is brought over to MGM to replicate the success of Dracula with his own horror movie, and instead he produces Freaks, which is a horror movie in concept. Right. But not really a horror movie. It's more of a sideshow melodrama that has a horrific final final five minutes. Um, which for more on that, see back to our episode with Smokey from Rated H, where we talked about uh freaks and all of its controversies. Um and uh but uh Todd Browning after that never really found a footing in Hollywood again. Freaks kind of like damaged his reputation. He directs other films such as The Devil Doll before before finally retiring by the late 30s before he would die in the 60s, kind of living in his own privacy and relative obscurity. Um, Dwight Fry, as I already mentioned, kind of got stereotyped and uh, typecast into the role of a raving lunatic or a creepy guy. He would have been more bound for a comeback would it not been for his unli- untimely death in the 40s. Bela Lugosi, as we know, was offered the role of Frankenstein, did a screen test for Frankenstein, turned down the role of Frankenstein. Um, It's been reported that he had every right to turn down the script that he was receiving because it's not the one that James Whale ended up shooting. Yeah. And it's a shame that we don't have, that we don't, that we'll probably never see the test footage of Lugosi and makeup. A lot of people say it looks a lot like the Gollum. Uh, oh really? Yeah, from the from the twenty films, uh, when the from the twenty film Der Golem, like it's similar in structure to that. So I'm imagining a little bit more of a clay, rigid aesthetic. Yeah. Whereas, Karloff's is a rigid aesthetic, but rounded out, like it's smoothed over, and allowed to be a little bit more imperfect. Yeah. Um, and instead of doing this. Uh, Lugosi does Murders in the Room Morgue, directed by Robert Flory, who was supposed to direct Frankenstein until James Whale swept the project from him. Uh, Lugosi would find himself into independent productions like White Zombie and relegated primarily to Monogram Pictures and Poverty Row Studios, where he would get quick money and uh, top billing. Whenever he would return to Universal, he would always be second build or third build or fifth build, whether that was for Karloff, Rathbone, or Lon Chaney Jr.'s sake. Um, 
by the 1950s, he was already very poverty-stricken, addicted to morphine, had checked himself publicly into rehab, and started making movies uh, near the end of his life with one Edward D. Wood Jr. Um, and I don't want to talk too much about Edward D. Wood Jr. in relation to Bella Lugosi yet because we can talk about Edward, Edward D. Wood Jr. on the show because um, of his output in the 50s. And I think that that's where it's deserved. But I will say we brought up Ed Wood. Why don't we get that out of the way right now? Okay. In 1994, Tim Burton directed a movie written by Scott Alexander and Larry Karaszewski called Ed Wood, which was about, which is a light-hearted biopic about Ed Wood and specifically his friendship with Bella Lugosi. And Lugosi died without ever having a true comeback. The exception being any time he played Igor for the Universal Monster series in the Frankenstein movies, which is arguably his finest role as an actor, unless you're going to count, which I will, uh, the Black Cat. I love him in the yeah. Black Cat a lot. Uh, and in the Body Snatcher, where he has a wonderful one-scene moment. Um, but Lugosi was always Dracula for everybody in the public mind. He said actively in albeit publicity materials that Dracula is a blessing and a curse. And the movie Ed Wood, to me, the reason why I love it, besides the fact that it's my favorite Tim Burton movie, really has to do with the way Lugosi's handled. No matter how inconsistent it is with the actuality of his interactions with Ed Wood Jr., Lugosi gets the send-off he was robbed of as one of the forebearers of the horror genre. Yeah. Um, Karloff overshadowed him for so long, and they didn't have the feud like everybody says they did. Right. The, the feud's a publicity stunt blown out of proportion. Yeah. In fact, they were very cordial with each other. Uh, but if he had any begrudgment, he'd have every right because he was not treated the same. Right. His Hungarian accent was definitely an inhibitor. Uh, towards more mainstream roles that Karloff could do. His addiction to morphine did not help his circumstance either. His desperate need for money was uh, a result of that. And he held himself up to a living style that was a little bit out of his means in that result. Um, what Edward does ultimately is reckon with his legacy as Dracula while kind of allowing him to be at peace. Yeah. I th mm -hmm. I think that that's... That's what Ed Wood does for Bella. And it's one of the reasons why when I finally saw Ed Wood, I started becoming a bigger Lugosi fan yeah. than a Karloff fan. Mm -hmm. Because it allowed me to feel a humanity to Lugosi that seemed barren and out and out of reach. Karloff, it's pretty easy to identify with him, not just as a Frankenstein monster, but him as a person. He overcame a lisp. He worked very hard until he finally got the break in Frankenstein, where then he was suddenly a big household name. He did several films prior to that. Nobody knew his name. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And he he died a very he, he died in pretty in a pretty positive environment for the most part. But he did suffer from back pain his entire life because of the shooting of Frankenstein. Like that, that ruined his that ruined his fucking health. Um, but Bella didn't get that kind of happy ending. He he had a right. wife and kid. Yeah. Bella Lugosi Jr. 
in the later on in his life would fight for the rights of the estates of people like his, like the Karloffs, like the Cheneys, so that their likeness, when it's utilized by Universal or any other company, that the family gets royalties on it because they're profiting off of a specific image. Now, Dracula's in the public domain. Anybody can be a Dracula. But one of the lasting legacies of this movie is the image of Dracula is still thought of, no matter how many iterations they have, as a slicked back person in a dinner jacket with a cape yeah, and a thick Hungarian accent. Yep. As far as films that are influenced by Dracula, arguably some of the lighting choices in Ned Wood are directly inspired by Dracula, um, not the least of which, obviously, just the black and white aesthetic in general. Dracula films evolve into different territory after Dracula. Dracula's daughter is more of a kind of a, le- a, a light lesbian thriller. Uh, Son of Dracula is a mess. <laughs> a fun mess, but a mess. Lon Chaney Jr. shouldn't be Dracula. <laughs> uh, and then the Hammer Horror Studios built up their own version of Dracula with Christopher Lee. Uh, and uh, we we got the 79 version of Dracula with Frank Langella. Um, we got the Dan Curtis version with Jack Palance. <laughs> <laughs> which is actually a pretty fun movie. Uh, and, of course, Bram Stoker's 1992 film Dracula uh, with Gary Oldman as the Count. And subsequent spoof of that, 1995's Dracula Dead and Loving It, the, the, to date, the final film directed by Mel Brooks. And m- m- every day it looks like it's going to be the same case, right? Uh, sadly. <laughs> but, um, but I think the longest-lasting legacy, Willex, for me, because I want to ask what you think it influences over the as time has gone on, the ultimate legacy is that it starts an entire genre. Yeah. Dracula starts the horror picture as we know it. Not not in story, not even in terms of tone, but intent. Oh, I see. The intent yeah. is to sh- the intent to scare you, to leave you chilled by the end of the evening. Yeah. Now, I would like to know where you kind of see this in modern horror. Uh, modern horror films or modern filmmaking where you see Dracula. Um, I don't think um, it's really hard to see modern horror films that take inspiration from Dracula. Um, I mentioned um, Cure for Wellness earlier. I think that one is very much inspired by universal horror films. Um, I'm trying to think of like maybe what, what is there another like smooth kind of uh, sleek, sexy horror star. Candyman. Candyman. Hmm. I think Tony Todd owes, could, could claim a little you know o- what? Odette. You, you're probably right. I haven't seen Candyman in a long time. But Can- Candyman, I think you're right. Candyman, especially Tony Todd playing it. I can't yeah. speak on the remake yet because I still have to analyze how you receive uh, Yabdul Mateen the second's performance. Yeah. But Tony Todd is very much playing on a gothic romantic trope. Yeah. Albeit, it doesn't entirely hold up today, but it's very uh, progressive for what it's doing at the time it's released in 1991. Um, I think Anthony Hopkins owes a bit of a debt yeah. because it takes a lot to be a charming monster. Yeah. I think the idea of the charming yeah, monster, you're right, you're right. that's the thing because you don't get... You can't have a Hannibal Lecter without a Dracula first. You have to have that precedent for it. Um, 
and there is something about the disarming quality that you could lay into a Norman Bates. However, I'd argue that the Norman Bates trope is way different. Uh, because Norman Bates is supposed to be the th- person you least expect. Right. Mm-hmm. And his charm is different. It's a boyish charm. Right. Um, I do think that, I think the overall the vampire performances of anybody is going to be influenced in some way by Dracula's, uh, Dracula's Bela Lugosi, Bela Lugosi's Dracula, whether that's the intent to homage it or to dispose of it. You, you can even find traces of it in... Um... 30 Days of Night, which is arguably a very different kind of vampire. You can. Um, um, but yeah, you can you can see traces of it for sure. Yeah, and I will say that something that Clive Barker brought up in the documentary had me thinking, and I'm going to make a defense for Twilight while firmly stating that I do not find... Get out. I, I do not find those books worth their weight in paper, <laughs> but that's my personal opinion. Yeah. As a whole, and this is something that Kevin Smith has taught me pretty early on as the Twilight phenomenon was going on. Let people love love what they love. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, let people love what they love. But also, there's a lot of commentary about how Twilight is trashy romance. What is? By all consideration from 1897, Bram Stoker's Dracula in... Clive Barker's words, and I trust Clive Barker on this. He's got an authority on it. I don't know. Uh, He says it's a first-rate 19th century trash novel. Yeah. There is a legacy of reminding ourselves that what we consider trash today may be considered the elegant classic of tomorrow. Absolutely. And I do think that the people who saw this as a supernatural melodrama now recognize it as among the first horror films. Yeah. And arguably, even if this film does not scare you the way it did audiences back in the day, which that is the thing, it did scare audiences. It did scare them. Now, there is a tinge of creepiness that still exists. I don't think the movie has lost its power. I think it's just shifted priority. And quite frankly, because the way the monster generation grew up in the 60s where they're embraced as kind of like the antiheroes or or even in case the sympathetic heroes. Yeah. Our impression of Dracula has become more of a museum piece, and I, and that extends to the Spanish version. But the Spanish version's influence, I'd think, arguably, is never underestimating the power of what another community can do with a piece of film. Yeah. The I do think that there is something in the lessons of the Spanish Dracula to suggest that it's it's firm evidence that there is no reason for the studios of the era to mistreat actors of a different ethnicity, race, or origin of creed. Yeah. Because we've seen the Spanish Dracula and it's just as well acted if not even in places better. The 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 actor playing Renfield in Spanish Dracula is arguably matched with Dwight Fry, but they have different strengths. Yeah. Uh, and Villa Rias is probably not going to win an acting award by by all accounts from other people in the doc, but he has the same charm as Lugosi, but they're different. It's a different yeah. type of charm. Mm-hmm. And also it establishes the fact that you can improve upon material that way and you can grow out of it. And I I wouldn't be surprised if filmmakers from other countries such as Mexico were inspired by that Spanish version of Dracula in certain extents because it force it, it compels people to up their game. I think it does for any country, no matter what. Yeah. But I can imagine Guillermo del Toro lifting a lot from this movie. 
Oh yeah. Uh, and, and, uh, even, uh, Alejandro Inaratu. Um, I can see that coming out of it in yeah. Uchetti. Mm-hmm. I do think that there is something about these foreign language versions that exist primarily now as a museum piece. But at the time, this is what got people interested in the monsters in other countries. And that's an enormous benefit that was initially started as a way to make more money has become a cultural benefit. The negative for Dracula and Spanish Dracula have two different outcomes. The negative for Dracula gets very worn and torn before the restoration is done for the 100th anniversary collector's edition. The Spanish version, with the exception of the third reel, was pretty much intact because nobody had really touched it. Yeah. And today the reputation is that Spanish Dracula is the superior version. Now, Willix, before we wrap up our discussion, here's the final question. Which version do you prefer? Um I I think the Spanish version is on a technical level, it's better. But I prefer the the original with Lugosi. I'm gonna it's Lugosi. I yeah. That's I'm in the same boat. I like the Spanish version in watching what is possible of the era with early sound film. But as I talked about how Ed Wood clarified Lugosi's legacy for me as a kid, the older I get, the more I appreciate this actor coming from overseas, learning his lines phonetically and creating an image out of what is conceived by all objective point of view to be a damaged performance. Yeah. It's it's kind of a miracle movie and a miracle performance to watch Lugosi act. Yeah. And I don't know if part of me sees uh, sees connection between, you know, an one wishing that an addict hadn't made the choices that he did in his life. But there is something about Lugosi's story that I look into on a personal level and go man like just I wish things could have been different. I really wish. Yeah. Like with other actors, I don't really have that same outlook. Lugosi's the exception. Like, I don't even think Jack Benny needed a big, big film career. Yeah. And I love Jack. Mm-hmm. Lugosi's the one actor along with, I guess Dwight Fry is an example of this too, but Lugosi's the big example of like, I wish people had treated you with more respect. And thankfully you have this one example of how great he could be and how he could overpower anybody else around him. Yeah. I think the same thing happened to Anthony Perkins. Yeah, I agree. And but Perkins wore it. Perkins wore his wore his typecasting on his sleeve a little better, I think. Yeah. I think Lugosi ultimately still wanted to play different roles. Yeah, exactly. Perkins kind of realized, hey, this is good for me. Yeah, and I think the same happened to Carrie Fisher and yeah. Mark Hamill after Star Wars. Yeah. That's actually another lesson to take from this is that this is a movie that perpetrates stereotypes or, or per- perpetrates typecasting. Yeah. And is an example of how negative stereo uh, negative typecasting continues to this day. Yeah. Cuz you can always stick any kind of actor in any kind of given role cuz you know they're reliable and you never know how that's fully affecting their career until it's too late. Right. I think people have become better at embracing their genre status. The difference is is that Somebody like Debbie Rashawn can wear the horror thing with pride because she loves it, and she's a fan of the art, 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 art film community. Yeah. Uh, or Vincent Price. Vincent Price takes a listen from Bella Lugosi and says, "I'm going to wear my horror badge with pride 
And Ralph yeah. Sanders used all the money to buy tons of paintings. <laughs> and, uh, you know, and I think Johnny Depp kind of found a good typecasting in his own thing with weird, kooky characters. You know? Right, yeah. Um, Christoph Waltz with smooth-talking bad guys. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I think there's a lot of things to take away from Dracula, but first and foremost is that it creates a universe that we still obsess over to this day that we hope and wish would get its own cinematic universe until you realize, hey, maybe just make good movies out of these things. Like The Invisible <laughs> Man. It was really good. Do The Wolfman next. Don't need to connect it to anything. Oh, yeah. Don't need to do it. Unless you really want to remake House of Frankenstein, which is really not a good idea. Don't do it. <laughs> uh, so, Willex, thank you for sitting down with me to chat about Frankenstein. Uh, Frankenstein. Frankenstein. Willex, thank you for sitting down to chat with me about Dracula. You're Thank you for having me on again, yeah, buddy. Really quickly, promote anything you've got coming up. Let people know what you've been um, up to. I've got nothing coming up, actually. <laughs> oh, no. I'll, I'll tell you what you've got coming up. Yeah. Your upcoming Ballyhoo appearance to talk about the wolf, man. Hey, oh, okay, awesome. <laughs> and and eventually some more Abbott and Custom. <laughs> well, I um, actually, during COVID, I, um, I started writing a lot. Nice. And I have been writing... Um, just just any idea that pops in my head, I've I've try I'm trying to, to develop whether it's through outline or bullet points or even just. And a then you've got bucket. cartoons in the. In the I got cartoons. Bucket. Yeah, yeah. I still have to send you. Yeah, you gotta send me the cartoon, cartoon stuff. Yeah. This is just banter between us, folks. I, creatives. Uh, yeah. Like. I just started. I just started a GI Joe script. <laughs> Woo! Can you make it better than Snake Eyes? Please make it better than Snake Eyes. I haven't seen Snake Eyes, but yeah, it's, I think I have. It's can. not a bad movie. I just wish the script was better. And and it's not like I'm writing this stuff to like oh, I'm going to sell it. I'm just writing this stuff because the the ideas are popping in my head. Hey, I'm like, know, hey, yeah, I'm going to write this. It's so. it's what I it's what I think anybody in the fan community should do. If you love yeah. something, express your creativity. Just don't bitch about it on the internet, please. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I've I've been I've been I'm actually working on a. Um, um, like a fantasy adventure script, and I've I've been skyping with a good buddy of mine. He's working on a novel at the same time, so we're reading each other's stuff and getting each other notes and very cool meeting kind of regularly. And um, so that's been it's been nice. It's just I I I just you probably won't ever see my shit, but I'm I'm having fun. So, but what, why don't you tell people your Twitter account so they can follow you? How about oh that? oh I do have a Twitter account. It's at Craving underscore brains. Yep, and you are on. um, You are on. I I will say there is something because I want to be smarter, and I also like zombies. There you go. Yeah, yeah. I'm sorry. What did you say? I was going to say you do have a project that you can promote because you have an Instagram page called the Colorado Bat Cave. Oh, that's just that's just my yeah. Yeah, I think that's something to promote. What <laughs> so, Willix has done and what we were able to do today, he built a little bat cave screening room with him and his roommates. It's just a little home theater. It's a it's DIY a home, home theater, but super it's, DIY home it, theater. It's kind of like, but it's like a it's like a box theater. It's like kind of cool. Yeah, we but, blacked out the perpendicular, and mm-hmm. I honestly I don't understand why more people haven't done it this way. I maybe they don't have the same kind of wall that you guys have. Like that is a very well, convenient wall. I mean, up up to a, a few years ago, like getting a, a projector was very expensive, but it's affordable now. You yeah. know what I mean? But whenever you look at like DIY home theater videos on YouTube, yeah, they still spend like over five thousand dollars. You don't you know? need to do that. You need a I, projector and a chair. I think I spent, um, I think I spent about seven hundred bucks. There you go. To get all this stuff. 
That's so. that's insane. And also, yeah. you've told me about how I can squeeze around some money to, yeah. do, to do my own version because yeah. I've still got the pull down. I've got the pull down screen and everything, yeah. and it's a very big screen. Yeah, we don't have a screen. We just project on the wall, on the whole wall. It works though. We and watched. It looks amazing. We watched both versions of Dracula on it, and yeah. it looks fantastic. Um. So yeah. Um. At Colorado Cave is my is the home theater, and I also have um an Instagram account for my home tiki bar. Yes. Which is not really a tiki bar. It's more like a. It's more like a Indiana Jones adventure bar, yeah. but it's uh, at Cannibal Charlie. Yeah, Cannibal Charlie. Look so. it up, and if you're looking for cool pictures of an awesome bar that can be becoming mobile soon, perhaps. I mean, I don't know. <laughs> I mean, it's imagine imagine uh, if Indiana Jones visited a a island in the South Pacific, and there like there's. You've created a lost Indiana Jones adventure. Yeah, well, I mean, if if we were to go upstairs right now and count movie references, there's all the, I've there's seen. like it's like Disney and Indiana Jones and, and classic horror movies. It's like there's like forty references up there. Or something. I, I saw the initial plans before you made all the final details. Yeah, and it's like yeah, this is like full of movie trivia, like just stuck on this one bar. Yeah, it's fantastic. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you, Mr. Willex. Yeah, and, man, thank you. Yeah, and we'll get you back for The Wolfman. That's going to okay. wrap it up for this episode of the Yesteryear Ballyhoo Review. You can find out more about us at Yesteryear Ballyhoo Review uh, by looking at the show tags on the back end of the show. Uh, you can follow us on our, our Twitter page, ba- at Ballyhoo Review. Uh, you can email us at ballyhooreviewpod at gmail.com. Um, but as with all of our episodes relating to the monsters, I want to leave you with this final speech that was initially cut after the re-release of Dracula but was in the original version an original speech given out given out by Edward Van Sloan at the end of Dracula and I think it's appropriate for all the monster movies so here just a moment ladies and gentlemen a word before you go we hope that the memories of Dracula and Renfield won't give you bad dreams just so just a word of reassurance when you get home tonight and the lights have been turned out and you are afraid to tur- to look behind the curtain and you dread to see a face appear at the window, why just pull yourself together and remember that after all, there are such things. Good night. This concludes tonight's episode of Yesteryear Ballyhoo Review. Remember, you can follow us on Twitter at Ballyhoo Review and on Instagram at Ballyhoo Review Pod. Our theme was composed by Matty Ghost. Be sure to check out more of his music on Twitch. Our announcer was Henry Jarvis. Look for him on the Real Nerds Podcast. This is Zach signing off. Stay tuned for Jack Benny, who follows immediately after station identification. Thank you.